This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting a position on him. We'll never let the true facts come about more to the and uh, who was the grotto leader? Don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Are these people in very high positions yet? Yes.1976, they're being pressured to come up with another album. They've been on an upward swing. I think Irving Azoff went and cobbled together like a greatest hits compilation because they were taking too long and sold it without their knowledge, which had all of their like their kind of first four albums like hits on it, which became the number one selling album of the 20th century. I think it sold like 28 million copies. Um, but the whole time they were like holed up in various studios trying to come up with something and i don't know it seems like they they were at their peak but also it was it was kind of like a rough um start but then and i'm sure this like eats at dawn that you know this this ate at don and glenn forever but it was fingers Mm -hmm. felder 
who kicked it all off. <laughs> he was sitting out at his Malibu beach house while his son Jesse splashed about in an inflating, inflatable wading pool. He had just been for a swim in his cutoff shorts and he was still wet, sitting on a couch in the living room, looking out at the sun, glittering on the water, thinking about how incredibly lucky he was and reflecting like, I don't know, all these things. How he, he had his wife and uh, that was awesome. And now here I was sharing this beautiful life with her, playing music and being paid handsomely for it too. Regardless of the infighting, what we had achieved as a band was pure and bright and true. We created something far bigger than who we were or how we felt individually. The music we made really touched people. I promised myself never to lose sight of that and try my hardest to make the others remember it too. Feeling inspired and picking up an acoustics 12-string guitar I had lying around, I started strumming absentmindedly while staring out at the ocean, inhaling the fresh salt air, and before I knew it, a few opening chords just kind of oozed out. I played with them, teased them, pushed them further than they'd ever intended to go, and suddenly had something that sounded pretty cool. It was about 32 bars long with a verse and a chorus, a sparkling little gem that fell out of the spectacular view before me. When I had finished playing, the musical vibrations hung suspended in the air before fading into silence. The hairs in the back of my neck were standing on end. Dwayne Allman was right. If your spine tingles, it's working. Oh yeah, he was also friends with the Allman brothers, like, before he was <laughs> famous. The, the, the total Forrest Gump. He says, I had a little uh, uh, TAC four-track studio set up in the spare bedroom. I ran back there to put the idea down before I forgot it. I wanted a reggae-sounding backbeat, but the closest I had on my drum machine, an old Roland Rhythm Ace, was the cha-cha, so I played the 12-string on top of that. It sounded okay, but I knew I needed to leave it for a while, so I won't have to play with my kids and came back to it later. He kept tinkering around with it. The tempo was right. It needed another section. He wrote it out, like, in keeping in mind all of the particular strengths of all of the different eagles. By the end of the afternoon, when I mixed the whole thing to mono, there's a little bit of everything that ever happened to me in that song. There was some Mondi quintet bass, some basic Paul Hillis classical phrasing, some freeform flow style solos with a bit of Miles Davis thrown in, and some good old Elvis Presley rock and roll guitar. I could imagine the harmonies that would go with it would be very Crosby, Stills, and Nash and sound positively sun-kissed. It was, I later realized, the soundtrack of my life. And that, that <laughs> song was the melody to Hotel California, which he, you know, he was ordered to bring in, or I guess he, he was creating tapes of just like melodies and guitar parts and stuff that he would give to the people that, by, I think by now he was calling, he always puts it in quotes and capital letters, the gods, Don and Glenn, uh, that was the stature they had uh, made right. clear that they mm -hmm. wanted to be treated as. Um, so he started, um, he played the demo tape for them and he said, I could tell from Glenn's face that he liked that uh, the last part, the dueling guitar solos uh, at the end, uh, the best. And Don said, hey, I love this track, Fingers, with a rare smile. It sounds Spanish, like a matador or something. Very Latino. Glenn nodded his approval. Yeah. Right. Oh, good, I said, feeling like a puppy that had just been padded it for peeing like outside. It was like Mexican reggae originally. Mexican reggae. Yeah, Don yeah. wanted to call it Mexican Bolero. Um, and the, the cool. Felder said, okay, I said, grinning. The fact that Don had granted it a name was a very good sign. Oh, you know, like <laughs> he's, he's already being reduced to this like hypercritical, yeah. like just like always in fear of being like dismissed by the gods. But they happened to like this one, which was good. Uh, and I guess, you know, once they started playing around with it, Glenn had a germ of an idea while he was listening to it. He was great at conceptualizing and listening to a lot of Steely Dan at the time. Quote, this could be about the fantasy of California, he said. I can see this guy driving down a desert highway at night in a convertible and seeing the lights of L.A. way off in the horizon. Wow. 
We all knew that feeling. went right into the song. Right? Uh, We'd all driven to L.A. from our respective homes and been overwhelmed by the awesome spectacle of the city with its twinkling lights spread before us. Don snapped the image in his mind and took it from there, expanding it to the guy seeing a hotel in the distance and deciding to rest for the night. There, where he has served pink champagne under mirrored ceilings, a woman walks in. It's such a lovely place, he muses with that uncanny gift of his, and as he absentmindedly adds his smoldering cigarette butt to the dozen he already has lined up in front of him, quote, this could be heaven or this could be hell. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you know, so uh, they're, uh, you know, they, 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 it took them like weeks of like recording and dubbing and overdubbing and everything else. Uh, Felder says he, he taught Randy how to play the complicated bass part. And, you know, Don picked up the reggae style beat on the drums. And Joe worked out the other dueling guitar solo. Eventually, a name kind of emerged from the ether that was Hotel California. And they decided to make it their single, even though it was six and a half minutes long, which, you know, you can't do that, man. That's crazy. But they insisted uh, to Electra Asylum, who ordered them to shorten it. uh, Don Henley told them to release it or not at all. And I guess he was Mm -hmm. right. So, yeah, they busted out this album. Um, There's a little bit. It it ended up being basically a concept album. as I'm sure most people know. I don't know. Like, you, you listen to the whole Hotel California album, right? Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what was yeah. your thoughts on kind of the... Everybody knows about the song itself, but, like, what do you think about the whole album as an experience? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like, for me, a lot of it kind of blurred together. Like, you know, Last Resort, like, struck me, you know, from the mm-hmm. first lines, even though, like, they were kind of shitting on it musically. Uh, I guess, you know, maybe I have uh, I'm more into lyrics, maybe. I don't know. Like, uh, I, Who was shitting, you know, on it? Who was shitting on it musically? It was one of the two guys. Like, Don Henley or Glenn Frey was saying that, like, musically it wasn't that great. Like, lyrically it was good, but musically it wasn't hmm. that great. But, I don't know. Uh, that, I like, mean, struck me, you know. I, I was listening. I was, like, doing work, you know, at the same time mm-hmm. and everything. I'm trying to look at the, the track list for the album uh, right now so I can try to remember some of the songs right uh right life in the fast lane you know wasted time i remember wasted time yeah i remember uh my girlfriend making a remark about wasted time during the documentary you know like uh <laughs> but uh anyway you know but it uh it really wasted time to watch us like yeah. perform get over it and like yeah <laughs> like yeah, yeah exactly yeah like um but yeah i guess was Wasted Time kind of about the band? I think we it was about to, like, lost love. It, I think it was about a It's like always a about lost love. All right. Yeah, I, okay. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm yeah. not sure who in, in... I don't know if it could have been directed at like Stevie Nicks or some other uh, relationship that he had. They said that was they that started around rooting... around ti- the time of Yeah, Stevie it was Nicks? on and off around that time. And they said they started mm-hmm. rooting for Don Henley to like get dumped or like break up with his girlfriend. Right, because that, that was, would like, create main good fuel. songs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right, and you know it's yeah. true. Like, uh, yeah. like He's uh, such a, you know, I haven't mentioned it until now, but like he's, he's such a like self-flagellating cancer in some ways. Um, the astrological makeup... <laughs> it is, it is <laughs> the era but the astrological makeup um, of the eagles as a side note, right, is quite okay. interesting uh they're yeah, all water signs except Randy for don felder pisces right yeah, yeah he's a sensitive pisces um joe walsh 
Timothy Schmidt and Glenn Fry are all Scorpios, uh, like Alpha. Mm. Well, actually, you know actually, who no, else is Timothy Scorpio Schmidt's again. Uh, Taylor is also a Scorpio. Oh no, wait, she's oh. not. She's Sagittarius. No, she's a Sagittarius. She's Sagittarius. Right? Yeah, because yeah, 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 of the archer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah. no uh, right, that makes uh, sense. Um, but Don Henley, you know, it should be mentioned, is a Cancer, but he's also a Cancer Leo cusp, and I think that everything I like appreciate about Don Henley is like uh, his Cancer side, and everything I I don't like about him is like his Leo side. Um, but, uh, no, I digress. But, uh, and interesting, the only person that got canceled was Virgo, uh, Don Felder. He's the only one who was an earth sign and, you know, just couldn't hang with the band, had to be, uh, purged. So, you know, mm-hmm. take from that what you will. Mm-hmm. Lots of astro- but, uh, astrology, uh, going on here. Is this, well, did you pick this up from, <laughs> from witchy women, uh, that you encountered, like, in, in It LA, is witchy women. Uh, Don Felder also says when he first moved to L.A., he was living in Culver City, and his neighbor was, like, a super witchy, new-agey tarot woman. And one day mm-hmm. she offered to give him a tarot card reading. And when she did, she, like, gasped and was like, oh, Wow. And he's like, what? And she's like, you're going to be very rich and famous soon. And this is like a, two years before he joined the Eagles. So, you mm, know, wow. he felt like, hey, you know, you know, uh, <laughs> they definitely, I think, all were kind of into like their astrology thing, like uh, casually. I mean, he was dating Stevie Nicks. Come on. Like, how could he not? Be? Right. Yeah. But, you know, all these guys woman. just like sensitive, touchy water signs all sloshing around together in the studio and like pissing each other off because they're all super moody and, you know, have so many emotions and stuff. So um, mm-hmm. the last resort is the song that I would like ride with the hardest in terms of saying the Eagles were like, I don't know, like based or like actually made a kind of political statement that was, you know what I mean? Like. Yeah, I don't know if you really could say that except like accepting their much later like Iraq War album or whatever. I don't think you could really mm-hmm, say there's right. like a direct political message. But I would say if you had to stack them up with a band like say the Grateful Dead, who had like their like one or two political songs in the '80s, I think definitely like the the Eagles' political statement comes out a hell of a lot stronger than like John Perry Barlow's thing about you know throwing stones you know like uh right maybe because john perry barlow's literally descended from the people that don henley is criticizing in the last resort like people Mm -hmm. like uh jesus people that raped the land and like bought ugly houses and stole like all the west from the native americans yeah Uh, you know that song really reminded me a lot of a jackson brown song from late for the sky that i love which is before the deluge uh, which is also kind of, it's like a timeless song in a way, because what I love about that song is that, like, it's about, like, the boomers, obviously, like, but it also applies, like, so well to millennials, you know? It's, mm. like, it's really, like, about this kind of messianic, it's, it has similar themes where there's kind of, like, these, it's interesting that they were recurring to them as, like, gods, you know, in the band and everything, but there's, like, uh, the religious themes, like, in the song are not really typical of the eagles except for in hotel california like there's a little bit of stuff like that you know like uh what's the song where they're talking about how like there's a girl and she's like the daughter of the devil or like maybe she's an angel or something oh uh, you know uh one about? of these yeah. nights one of these nights yeah yeah yeah, yeah. right 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 yeah so there's, well, there's a funny stuff, an- like, there's a the funny anecdote time, that you know? they said that that uh henley's original lyrics for that was like like i've been searching for a daughter of god and like mm-hmm. Bill Simzik, probably due to his Catholic upbringing, uh, and a couple of the other guys were, and maybe Bernie were like, "Hey man, like 
you should probably change that because like every religious person in the country is going to be like boycott our record if you sing i don't know about a daughter of god it's kind of funny like it wouldn't seem that controversial today but i guess you know the eagles always had like a kind of crossover audience in like the heartland so to speak you don't want to be like so i think you changed to an angel in white yeah i've been searching for the daughter the devil himself i've been searching for an angel yeah an angel in white so i don't know maybe yeah it's weird he did say i've been searching for the daughter the devil himself if you're yeah searching for the daughter of the love satan that to me yeah. <laughs> would seem to be just as inflammatory as saying saying you're searching for a daughter of God almost sounds kind of wholesome to, to my it does. ear. It like is it weird. seems like maybe you know, they use I mean, reverse psychology the on it. Rest- <laughs> yeah, like I don't know. Was there is there some context that I'm missing with the particular phrase daughter of God? I you think know? I had uh, I think I had written it in the notes here. Full moon it, is calling, fever is high. Anyway, sorry, you got your demons, yeah. you got your desires. Anyway, sorry, yeah, uh, what were you yeah, saying? yeah. It's when uh, Don kind of like following in the witchy woman thread. He has this yeah, like you know woman, kind yeah. of mm-hmm. like danger thing of uh, like relationships being like perilous and like being seduced by like a witch and like yeah. being a, like somewhat aware of his own like uh, appetite for like self destruction a little bit. But, like, he knows mm-hmm. he's, like, dancing with the devil, and, like, he kind of likes it, but also is ambivalent about it. Well, you know, I read that part of the inspiration for Hotel California, like, one of the things that they were reading was the book The Magus by uh, John Foles. Did you ever hear that? Yeah. No, Actually, you no. find this pretty interesting, because uh, okay. this was a- allegedly, like, a very direct inspiration for Hotel California. You know, like, they mentioned that they wanted it to be kind of, like, the book the magus Mm. and yeah just like it's about like this dude who's like a grad student um and he like uh goes off to like some island like some weird yeah like a greek island uh and then yeah he just kind of like got a lot of ennui and then like uh he meets this guy maurice conscious who is a like a greek like a like a rich greek guy and he's like a recluse you know slowly it like it sort of becomes apparent that this guy like maybe is like a nazi collaborator but he's also like a (laughs) you know he is the titular magus kind of and he has like all these sort of eyes wide shut type like surreal parties and it's kind of like you know a meta situation where it's like a yeah i'm reading it here this sounds a lot like hotel california and it's like got well yeah nicholas is gradually drawn into consciousness psychological games his paradoxical views on life his mysterious persona and his eccentric masks at first, Nicholas takes these posturings of conscious, what the novel terms to be the God game, to be a joke, but they grow more elaborate and intense. Nicholas loses his ability to determine what is real and what is artifice. Against his will and knowledge, he becomes a performer in the God game. No, he becomes one of the gods. Eventually, Nicholas realizes the reenactments of the Nazi occupation, the absurd playlets after Saad, and the obscene parodies of Greek myths are about his life, not conscious's life. I, it's also weird that his name is like conscious, like conscious. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. that is ultra sus. That. Wow, yeah. I did not. I'm surprised I never came across that as uh, as an influence that was uh, basically yeah acknowledged. Yeah, it was like they you know wanted to do something strange that had that kind of like vibe. I'm trying to see what the actual quote was yet. Uh, in an interview with Cameron Crowe, Frey said that he and Henley wanted to open, like, an episode of Twilight Zone and added, We hit this guy and make him, like, a character in The Magus, uh, where every time he walks in a door, there's a new version of reality. Oh, you know what? I might have actually misinterpreted this. Oh, no, it's it's correct, because uh, there was yeah. a movie based on it. Yeah, yeah you're uh, right, so... with Michael Caine. 
Yeah, they yeah. were. I maybe were referring to the movie, but uh, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. I was thinking there's something yeah. really different called the Mages, but it does fit anyway. Yeah, uh, it does but, act, yeah. absolutely fit, and uh, um, and so yeah, they, yes. they're a little bit cagey about their official influences, or they say different things at different times about it's the just hotel. A journey from song. innocence to experience. That's, That's it. it. That's it. it. Yeah, or as Don Felder it. said, Don, Don Felder gave like his best kind of like stab at like kind of like what the vibe is, but ultimately is like the bottom line is like it's whatever you think it is. <laughs> it's like okay, mm-hmm. um, but I think there is a kind of liminality to Hotel California that does explain kind of why it is so haunting and it resonates. Like right. Uh, mm-hmm. the, well, that's like can... true of like a lot of the best song lyrics or like you know poetry as well. Like is that it's vague enough much like astrology uh, horoscope uh, you know well, yeah no no uh, you yeah, can for sure. like you read whatever into it and like you can like pin the narrative of like your own design like onto it or it just like provokes your imagination you know they i would almost like, say you know, that it's like it is the dialectical synthesis of like the, <laughs> the, per- the personal and the specific and the universal mm-hmm. kind of merging into like one one form into, and encapsulated into this song where it's clearly referencing, I think, things that are deeply personal to, like, Don Henley. Basically how the the band feels about Los Angeles through telling this story. And it's also, it's like a spooky ghost story. It also has these references mm-hmm. to, like, the Book of Revelation. It also has references to, like, being a metaphor for drug addiction. Like, they stab it with their steel yeah. knives but they just can't kill the beast and also is like a metaphor for the entertainment industry and also is a metaphor for California and also is kind of a metaphor for America in general as like this in this hedonistic like 70s like you know spiritually uh, adrift and like hedonistic moment of like the mid to late 1970s yeah. in America and ca- and also the the central idea of like California being both like this beautiful kind of like seductive beacon of like a place to go to, to find refuge, and then realizing it's like a satanic trap.
Yeah. A line that really hit different, uh, listening to it again, is like, you know, we are programmed to receive. You know, like, we have, uh-huh. like, programming, you know. It's it also, an NPC you know, it really, talking to him. Yeah, exactly. Like, or this is like a, this is like a system, you know. This is like a uh-huh. computer system. Like, although yeah. this is, like, really before any of that, like, really was in the zeitgeist in the way that you know, maybe to an extent, but not in the way that it is now, or that you would think maybe necessarily yeah, have that was just a like, twinkle down at UCLA. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, but like, the uh, whole entertainment industry, which is, like, run by this, like, mobbed-up parking lot company conglomerate, <laughs> like, you know, I mean, yeah. they're, who knows? And it's also a thing that, like, maybe, I don't know, McAllen does talk about mob ties in Weird Seeds Inside the Canyon, but I think sometimes when we're looking for kind of more... Tangential evidence of nefarious involvement, and in the kind of uh, entertainment industry, I feel like sometimes I don't know, like like we almost forget about the strong like overlap, or sometimes just like literally the sameness of like these organized crime entities controlling like the operations of like music companies, just like straight up, mm-hmm. or like these big entertainment yeah. companies, and like it. How many like there are all kinds of things it sounds like that would be like laundered. The activity of like controlling these stars, for example, seems like it's more often laundered through these like shady underworld type figures than like some military officer like driving down from like Lookout Mountain Air Force Base and like, you know, controlling people in that like direct. Does that make sense? Kind of like I think that the lurking menace of like the mob in general seem to be because, you know, where did they get all these drugs and like protection from like not getting messed with by the cops and and all these other kind yeah. of things. And it's like very Godfather. Right. Um, right. Yeah. In a lot of ways. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it hits on like all those levels and just the idea that like, yeah, California is like not what you think it is. It's actually this yeah. kind of satanic program, this trap. And even mm-hmm. um, a lot of people have really obsessed over like. You know, I called up the captain, which, okay, that's another weird thing. I used to listen to this song a lot with my dad, like, driving around in the 90s because he had, like, the CD. Mm -hmm. I think he had, like, Greatest Hits Volume 2. And he was the first one to tell me when I was, like, five, which is, like, kind of hilarious. That like, always stuck with me. It was, like, we just, like, play Hotel California. Yeah, Yeah, and he he would say, like, you know what the song's about, right? And I'm, like, what? It's, like, well, he's he's in, like, a hotel, (laughs) but it's actually hell. And I'm like, what? And, like, the song did kind of, like, creep me out a little bit, but it was always, like, chill. You know, I wasn't really, like, into music as, like, a six- or seven-year-old like that. But I always would, like, listen to the lyrics. It was one of the first songs maybe where I, like, paid close attention to the lyrics. Like, they're seared into my memory forever. And even just thinking about inconsistencies in it. Like, why is, why did he call for the captain? Like, why is there a captain there? Yeah. He, it sounds like he's on a boat, a but he's point. not on a boat. Yeah. He's, a, he's in California. He's in the Hotel California. Mm. So, like, why is it I call the captain, please bring me my wine. And he said, like, we haven't had that spirit here since 1969. I did read one interview once where Don Henley got, like, super right, pissed yeah, off at a journalist. Right, yeah, he got pissed off because someone was like, <laughs> uh, wine isn't, you know, a spirit. Uh, it's fermented, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was yeah, like, so, but, like, like uh, yeah, like, yeah. stupid people like you aren't worth talking about about this song. Like, it's a literary device. <laughs> like, shut the fuck up. Like, he got really yeah. mad about it. Um, but yeah, I'll allow it. I'll allow it. It's a good little double entendre thing. And, of course... Like, we haven't had that spirit here since 1969. Makes you think of Manson, makes you think of Altamont, makes you think of just, like, the end of the 60s. And how... I was even thinking deeper into it. Like, please bring me my wine. You could even 
read that as a double entendre, like W-H-I-N-E, because he's talking, he was already at this point kind of cynical about the late 60s, which he kind of was Mm -hmm. like down with as a very young man. Uh, Like he was, you know, probably 18 to 20 when like the 60s were happening. And but then, you know, like he said in an interview in the 80s, like, what the hell did we accomplish? Like we got Reagan and Nixon and Reagan elected and the country went back into the hands of the people who were running it before. We didn't change a damn thing, frankly. And, you know, like saying there's a deadhead sticker on a Cadillac and like which I kind of like vibed with in a way. It was like he was one of the only boomer stars that was willing Mm -hmm. to like talk shit about the 60s but not necessarily from the point of like a boomer turned reactionary who was like actually like yeah. america was great all along and like people right. were dumb in the 60s for for questioning how great it was uh that's kind of like where glenn fry went with it but you know mm-hmm. it seemed like okay he was like down so maybe he's even saying that like the the kind of protests that were happening in the late 60s were like naive and misguided and we're gonna get crushed and so like please bring me my wine, like whining, like a young, like SDS radical, meaning well, but kind of like not really understanding the forces that are lined up against them and getting crushed and like bring me my wine. I want to whine about like what's going on. And oh, we haven't had that spirit here since 1969. And, you know, so I don't know that that could be reaching a little bit, but I still think that he is kind of like in debt, you know, some dance to remember, some dance to forget. Sounds like a deadhead show in like 1976, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like every right. any like if anybody's ever been to like a boomer band concert, like in their lifetime over the last like, I don't know, 30 years, like, you know, exactly that vibe of like, you know, I don't know, like like boomer like parrot heads or anybody like that kind of just like awkwardly like dancing, you know, like doing a kind of like whirling dervish kind of thing. And it's like, yeah, you know, some dance to remember, some dance to forget mm-hmm. or if you know, they're still taking yeah. acid like they're just forgetting. And, uh, yeah, and, like, mirrors on the ceilings, like, a weird kind of orgy, like, thing going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are all just prisoners here of our own device. So, you know, you have to sign a Faustian contract with Swan, and then you're locked in forever. Yeah. In a way, like, I wonder if the Hotel California is, like, kind of, like, you know, the body or, like, the the self in, like, some way, you know? That's... Or, like, the, like, what you're inside, you know, the externality, like, of the body. Whereas, like, the the self is, like, within it, you know, the hotel would okay. be the outside. Yeah, I mean, that's, like, in, uh, <laughs> kind of esoteric uh, reading, but, quite, uh, quite. you know, yeah, uh, like, the mirrors in the ceiling, you know... Oh yeah, Trapped we're getting into like here, Ariana Grande you know. video territory of like your mm-hmm. your splintered reflections of yeah, yeah. Well, like you know, the eyes or the mirrors of the soul, you know, like are this like your own eyes that like you know uh, only reflect things. Again, like another thing about the Eagles is that like they were like you know, I mean, as we talked about, they were all like on drugs. Apparently, like they like you know went out to vibe by the fire and like do a bunch of peyote and like experience eagles like you know in yeah and in joshua tree where graham parsons died yeah exactly right yeah Uh, and then they saw like a they saw an eagle that sounded like it they saw it like it was like comically like oversized like bigger than it was 
like flying in front of the sun. Yeah, and it was and like then, mocking like, them because like Glenn Frey yeah. was like trying to pull his pants up and pee, and like the eagle was like was looking down at them, yeah. being like, uh, "You think you are eagles, like or whatever." <laughs> like that was their but, interpretation. But Felder uh, says that, that actually Felder interestingly said because he wasn't there, but Bernie I guess told him that like Bernie had been reading like a lot of Carlos Castaneda. And actually, like, they, I guess they did see an eagle while they were out there tripping on peyote. But I guess he'd been reading this book that, like, the Hopi Indians had, like, revered the eagle right. as a symbol of, like, upright morals and also the, the creature that flew closest to the sun, which is uh, half mm-hmm. true, like, half relevant, <laughs> I guess, you know? Yeah. They did fly close to the sun. Um, and, yes. of course, mm-hmm. yeah, just like, I mean, hey, you know, if that's how you had to get the name, uh, I guess it works i mean what what's yeah, more like americana I mean, it's funny that eagle. didn't one of them say like i wanted to be like a west side story type gang or whatever yeah glenn fry like, really that. funny yeah, he that wanted he it would... punchy and like like the jets yeah. or something uh yeah, yeah it's really yeah. funny that like that's what you'd be like you know we want to be really masculine and cool like the jets and the sharks from west side story <laughs> you know like yeah all right uh, yeah, yeah, but, yeah exactly uh, uh, i mean uh, the other thing do we want to talk about Camarillo State Hospital now, or like we could circle back to that, like uh, as we wrap yeah, up the end? Because it's not confirmed yeah. that that was an inference, but like just let it be known that there was a sus, like mental hospital, like a state run mental hospital um, up near Oxnard, um, you know, a little bit north of LA. Uh, well, maybe we should uh, also discuss, like, you know, some of the rumors around Hotel California, you know, sure, obviously sure. there's the LaVey thing. What's, like, yeah, the real yeah. version, you know? Of course, like, you just can't kill the beast. We mentioned that. That's, like, you know, the Yeah, beast, it was also a Steely Dan diss. Uh, the Steely Knives thing was kind of a, a, a jab at them because they had mentioned the Eagles. They said, like, turn down the Eagles. The neighbors are listening in, like, one of their songs. So Don Henley had to, like, fire back and, like, do that. So um, the Steely Dan is sus in their own way. Like, one of them went on to, like, design missiles for the Pentagon, I think, in the 80s. So, like, you know, it's hard to get away from this stuff. But... Um, but yeah, like, like we could talk about, like it gets, it gets briefly dealt with in the documentary, but all the various conspiracy theories around Hotel California. And it is kind of interesting because to me, I've always listened to it as like a kind of, this song is kind of a cautionary tale and like a warning. So it, it doesn't, it doesn't read to me like an endorsement of like Satanism. It sounds like this is not a place you want to end up. Like you don't want to end up in the hotel, like don't go in the Hotel California. You know what I mean? like drive away like it's it's dangerous like you're gonna get enslaved so like it's hard for me to imagine that this whole album and like with the exception of maybe like life in the fast lane but even that is like it's more like just telling a story about some cokeheads and like how they destroy their own even that's like a cautionary tale like you know Mm -hmm. they they burned out basically so like the whole album yeah it, it doesn't strike me as something that's like endorsing satanism but i guess that's what some people thought in like the 70s and the 80s and a lot of it revolved around this like open spread picture when you like opened up the vinyl that was like kind of a a group shot of like the band and like i don't know their their roadies and groupies and all these other people kind of dressed up in like eccentric costumes like pimps and like hookers and uh, drug dealers and gangsters or cowboys or whatever all the kind of like you know california uh, I don't know, outlaws or whatever, and in kind of like mm-hmm. the uh, the open atrium of, um, I forget which hotel they shot the inside version. I think it was a place in Santa Monica. The outside on the album cover is the Beverly Hills Hotel in Beverly Hills. Right, but yes. people said that they could see 
like up in the kind of like the balcony above in the shadows was like a lurking dark figure of a man. And some people believed that it was Anton LaVey like photobombing like the inside and thus the Eagles were Satanists. Yes, I'm looking now. I can kind of see it. There's someone lurking. Yes, I I do agree. There's someone lurking. You know, it could be anybody, but it does look kind of spooky. It is like one of those things where it's like there's a spooky ghost being captured, you know? Yeah, there is a kind of like a almost like a Stephen Greer like light being (laughs) or something. Well, more than the light being like look up to the left of the chandelier on the left. Okay. Like, is that not a person standing, like, in a doorway or something up there? Or is that a picture? It does look like a person. Like, it looks like a head. Uh, okay, so it does look like there might be a guy with a kind of Fu Manchu beard who is bald like, standing <laughs> up there. Um, uh, but, you know, okay. Here's it could also thing, be, like, a Here... woman with an afro because uh, there is like, a dark ring, but I'm not sure if that's a doorway. I think it might. I think it seems like a doorway. And yeah. it seems like other people Anton think that he's lurking behind the shit. Sh- like, well, okay, no, no, I'm, I'm not like, I'm not opposed. Like, if somebody can show me, like, reliable, a kind of, you know, reliable evidence or whatever that, like, Anton LaVey. The thing is, is that compared to all of these other '70s sus rock stars, the Eagles seemed more just kind of like, not that they weren't interested in life in the fast lane and like some dark. They weren't like carrying around the Urantia book and being like, this is my Bible or anything. Exactly. Uh, exactly. But, you they know, weren't they were like, like dabbling you know, in like Crowleyanism and stuff like that. Like they just weren't really like, they were into like partying and like being the Eagles mostly. I mean, they were, I guess, reading the Magus and, you know, Don Henley well, was Well, yeah, an avid what about reader. Carlos Castaneda? He's a little bit Well, sus. okay, yeah. Well, exactly. Carl, so I, I think they were more on that tip of like getting kind of dabbling in new agey stuff, but not the really, really dark, like new agey stuff. I just, I just haven't seen any evidence of their interest in, say, like Aleister Crowley or something like that. They might have been aware of who he was, but I mean, even, yeah, songs like Witchy Woman, I'm sure they knew a thing or two, but I feel like they never... They never really promoted that in any of their music. And to the extent that they mentioned it, it was always in this kind of like ambivalent, kind of sussed out kind of tone about, I mean, yeah, like Witchy Woman or like Take the Devil. Like Take the Devil is like not a pro-devil yeah. song. Like Randy Meisner's no, like not. warning you. Like that's Take true. the they Devil like from Your Mind. for the like, devil. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we let Mick Jagger uh, and Keith Richards off the hook for like literally singing like uh, "Sympathy for the Devil" while the Hell's Angels like well, murder we don't a black let them guy off the like, hook. in front of them. Uh, yeah, we don't. We don't we let them off will, the hook. But... Yes. Uh, yeah, and like Jimmy Page have. like hypnotizing yes. a thirteen-year-old girl in his hotel room, like holding a cane and like wearing a top hat, like you know, uh, like, mesmerizing <laughs> uh, yes. like groupies. Like it, it sounds even from Felder, who's not necessarily in a position to like uh, defend Don and Glenn super hard. Kind of, I mean, they do sound increasingly lecherous and kind of like almost borderline. Like, how could you not be borderline predatory in this kind of environment of, like, groupies and, like, tons of cocaine and all yeah, that kind of stuff? Yeah, and it almost seems but like the worst sounds... they got, the less, like, it almost seems like the way that it's framed is that the mystical stuff was more, uh, you know, prominent in the beginning when everything was pleasant. And, like, when they started to go downhill, there wasn't, like, you know, it wasn't like they were spiraling into occultism or, like, 
pseudo shamanism. Uh, no, they were they were going into the yeah. rock and roll kind of psyop lifestyle of like self destruction, excess, destroying stuff, like just being bad boys. Like, I mean, I guess it's worth yeah. yeah. It's, Carlos it's Castaneda up now. is sus though. It would be like valid. He is sus. To do, oh like, no, he's super sus. About him, yeah. Like oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, and the yeah, fact that like they got their name from him, you know, uh, the. Uh, yeah, but yeah, another thing that you know, kind of down, I don't like, uh, true, but like, uh, you know, one thing I will say is that, like, I think that some of the stuff, I mean, it was like definitely something that there were a lot of like the reason why people say this stuff is because like it was like a real cultural phenomenon where there were all these rumors around Hotel California of like it's satanic, you know, like, uh, the same way with Stairway to Heaven, you know, be like, here's to my sweet Satan, you know, like the one who's oh, little yeah, bad yeah. would make me sad, whose power is Satan. <laughs> uh, you know, like, oh, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, no, exactly. Give me Actually, there was the, a little cool shed where he used to make us suffer sad Satan. Uh, but anyway, I, I d- uh, I, I, did you know, yeah, though, because like, I, I actually didn't know this, that there's actually like a backmasking theory about Hill, California. I heard this vaguely, like, when I was looking this up, but what was the... It's supposed to be, like, Satan has his own church or something, right? Like, that they're saying, something like that? Yeah, let me see. I guess, you know, it does say that, yeah, a lot of people got accused of doing this. Yeah, Satan hears this. He had me believe in him. uh, Yes, Satan organized his own religion is the supposed backwards message hiding behind the lyric, wake you up in the middle of the night. What do you think? (laughs) <laughs> uh, I'm trying to listen to it right now, but it's hard to pinpoint where in the backmasked version of the song uh, that comes. <laughs> this is funny. Uh, there's some other speculation. Save me, save me, Lord. Please now, please. I'm bleeding. Yes, yeah, slay their head off. Uh, okay, I found it. Uh, okay. I found the part in the song, which is allegedly yes, Satan. I'm going to listen and verify right now, you know, on, okay. yeah, not me live, too. obviously, me but uh, in this very moment. Uh, I hear it. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. <laughs> I I hear it. I hear Satan okay. organize his own religion. Okay, wait. Uh don't talk for a second. I'm going to What is it around 3:30? No, I have it around in the backwards version. It's like right at uh where is it? 4:48. Uh I'll put it in the in the in the chat and I'll put it in the okay. chat here. This is the version I'm using. If you go to the comments, like, you know, scroll down a little bit to James 6T9. 6T9, that is, three months ago. Click on his uh, his, uh, part in the song, yeah. Okay, that sounds like... Wait, hold on. Don't talk for, like, ten seconds. I definitely heard something. What do you think he's saying there? Because it does sound for a minute like he's saying some actual words. Yeah, uh, it. I do hear what people say. That like it does sound like yeah, Satan. Yeah. Yeah, he organized his own religion. 
It does sound it, like that, you know. It, a little bit, yeah. No, it doesn't. You know, there's not... a little bit of paranoia, you know, happening. But, uh, you know, I also can hear the backmasking in, I can definitely hear the lyrics, especially if you're told what it is in advance, you know, but. Yeah. Yeah. You know, something that I was going to say earlier is that, like, when there's something that's a cultural phenomenon, there's a lot of, you know, I remember the Smurfs satanic rumors, right? Like, you know, when Smurfs first became popular, there was a whole thing where people would say they could see Smurfs, you know, like, uh, like hmm. hurting people, like appearing, you know, like uh, these little beings, like, you know, like in real life. Ha- yeah, exactly. Like people being like haunted by Smurfs. So like when these things become cultural phenomena, like, you know, and there's also the Pokemon and being evil stuff, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. you or know, the Smurfs, where, yeah. like Tulpas, you know, um, <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. Like, uh, something, I mean, well, you know, like, stories of, like, little, I mean, the Smurfs really are, like, in a lineage of, like, fairies or wee folk, you know, yeah, gnomes, uh, Steiner alert, you know. Yeah, so I don't know, I'm to dig deeper, I've always been interested in the backmasking thing, because, you know, people like, you know, yeah. I don't know. People like Led Zeppelin, like, of course they would do that. Like, they like they seem like exactly the type of people that would. They were, you know, Jimmy Page was the producer, and he was a Crowleyite. So it kind of makes sense that he would do that. Uh, did You know, did the Beatles, did the Rolling Stones, did Queen. I don't know. I can't say for sure, but mm, that is interesting. That is interesting about yeah, Hotel California. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, that was one of the things people, yeah, didn't like about it or were sussed out by but is it you know it's at least not exoterically an endorsement of satanism which is more than you can say for most of today's pop music right that's true yes Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know they weren't like literally uh well or even 80s rock music which was like running with the devil like you know even if it was like positive sounding it was about running with the devil you know, so I, I would say that, you know, we have to allow a little bit of space for especially if this world is halfway as dark as we suspect it is. We have to allow a little bit of space for people to, I don't know, expose it or like reflect upon that or like reflect a certain aspect of reality, even if they can't show us like literally if it has to be cloaked in allegory a little bit, you know, um, it might be the best you can do to at least uh, introduce maybe, you know. A little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's like a cry for help in a way. Yeah, people in the YouTube thing said that they could hear, like, voices, you know, like, like people screaming for help. Right, like, yeah. In, throughout Hotel California. Mm, well, yeah, it's also it like a cry for like help. That. Right, in general. But, yeah, you know, even... Yeah, somebody said at 3.30, says, yeah, Satan. Yeah. yeah, say, yeah, Satan, here's this. He had me believe in him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, and um, somebody but... said at 4.48, snipe their head off. Yikes. Yeah. Oh, wow. Interesting. Uh, somebody else, I mean, probably have to double check this because it's like written in all caps in a frenzy. But uh, they say at 2.34, uh, he says John Lennon by himself. And at 5.30, Sad Beetle. Hotel California was released on December 8th, 1976, four years to the day that John Lennon was murdered. We'll have to touch back to that just like a little bit because there's like a couple weird synchronicities with like John Lennon being assassinated and connection to this. Because who guess, guess who had signed him to a big lucrative double album deal right before he got shot? David Geffen. Huh, interesting. But there's something even creepier that, that did happen later in the 70s. Uh, but... 
yeah, I mean, the hauntology of Hotel California, there's also the mental institution mm-hmm. thing, which, like, it has always been denied very steadfastly, yeah. but that was uh, well, yeah. very notorious and allegedly haunted mental hospital that is done in a Spanish colonial style that looks very much, looks very similar to the Beverly Hills Hotel. And so people thought that perhaps not only was, there, like, this could have been I mean, of course, it lines up with the drug rehab thing. They might have known other musicians who went to this hospital. But it was also definitely involved uh, to some extent in MKUltra-style creative medicine, let's say. But even before that, they were also involved in California's sterilization program in the early 20th century and in lobotomies and, like, uh, insulin shock therapy, the kind that Paul Robeson was subjected to in London and all kinds of stuff like that. So you even could almost read, like, if that were a subliminal inspiration for hotel california you could read it as like they're talking about like the mk ultra kind of like a chrysgillodon institute like straight out of inherent vice that they send like uncooperative musicians and celebrities to to like mk them into a compliance or else like you just mm. get stuck there forever you know what i mean like like there's even more mm, kind of like uh, sinister lines you could draw, but it's you know uh, that that one's I mean, liminal. Even the cover of Hotel California, the mysterious lurking presence of Anton Lavey aside, is kind of like eerie looking. Uh, oh, for sure, it it's very eerie looking. To it. Uh, yeah, 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 uh, yeah, exactly. And you know, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's still there today, Beverly Hills Hotel. You know, very. I think that's where Har- Harvey Weinstein uh, committed some of his like. Uh, crimes like that you know he sort of went down for was it the suite at the Beverly Hills Hotel um, so you know a lot of a lot of things have gone down there it, it has its own kind of you know haunted old Hollywood vibes well I mean speaking of the haunted vibes because I think Hotel California is a haunted album but I think it also has this still kind of like it's it's searching for a kind of way through or a way out like it's trying to escape the Hotel California you have a couple songs that are more wistful, like Wasted Time and like Try and Love Again, great, uh, Randy Meiser's last great uh, solo track. And The Last Resort, which tries to like grapple with the fucked up legacy of Manifest Destiny and imperialism yes. and like environmental destruction and all these other things that are like that are underneath like the California of our common mythology that you know need to be reckoned with you know as he says right. uh, much like yeah, we mentioned wasn't it yeah who who yeah whoever we there, there is no new more frontier we've got to make it here yeah in the Yankee Cowboy War that was mentioned so I think like like relatively uh, I don't know, like a, a, as good as you could probably get out of the American pop music industry in terms of like a political social message or something like that. And like an artistic statement about like where America was at probably mm-hmm. about the best you could do. But I do think it is not their darkest album by a long shot because their, their uh, darkest I- album is the long run, the follow up mm-hmm. to, to Hotel California, which like even has like the most just like dead funereal cover. In the long run cover. itself, like you know, again, I had a little bit of trouble making it through in the long run, <laughs> uh, you know. But the first song of in the long run, like, is just the irony is very thick because it's all about how they're gonna make it in the long run. Yeah. While they're like yeah. in the process of like just falling completely apart. Uh, yes. Yes. You know, and it's such an uh, upbeat, like insane. boomery, like blues track. Yeah. You know, in the like. Long run. Yeah. Like. Uh, <laughs> we yeah. Can make it. 
But some of the other ads, some of the other songs on the album, I mean, there is some like sonically relatively like adventurous material that uh, I think they were like stretching themselves out. But there's also like a lot of like spooky, dark songs. It's the only time where I start to feel like really sussed out by the Eagles themselves. Not that they're talking about something sus, but that they're like participating in something sus and they're telling you about yeah. it. to escape the hotel california and they're just like yes. they've accepted it now and they're uh in the yeah they're in the basement the of the hotel california. yeah mm-hmm. they're in the yeah the comet pizza basement that may not exist yes. except in the world of the mind but uh but also you know, you know still, still hell. some some good ones uh some good like b-sides on that album i think on the second half like putting the singles aside I think that the uh, the King of Hollywood song is really fascinating because it's like basically like a Harvey Weinstein like Me Too ballad, but obviously you know, I mean it was certainly pretty rampant in this decade. But it's all about a like psychotic like ultra powerful movie mogul who forces like young actresses like to be on the casting couch, and it even has a reference to him like. There's a kind of a funny line, like still his jacuzzi runneth over. Um, and I think it's like still he cannot get off. And so it's like he's he's like so overindulged, like, you know, just like kind of um, exploiting these like young, hopeful actresses that like he can't even get it up anymore. And his jacuzzi runneth over. But I actually like it musically. Like it's a very like smooth, like haunting track. I think it's one of the better ones in the album. And at least it's like, okay, like you, you guys are, you guys are calling out, um, I don't know, Bob, I don't know if they're calling out like Bob Evans or somebody else. It seems like that was maybe the archetype they were critiquing a little bit. Um, but then they have a couple other songs that make you go a little, especially given what happened with 
Don Henley in 1980, right. which we'll get to. But the the two ones are like, well, those shoes is I would classify it as like one of the more like sonically adventurous kind of songs. This is a very weird beat, which actually I was familiar with years before because it was sampled by Rick Rubin uh, in the Beastie Boys High Plains Drifter. I don't know if you've ever heard that song, but they like mm-hmm. sample the, the they sample the Eagles drum beat from those shoes, which I thought was kind of hilarious. That like, oh, the Eagles got like sampled by a rapper. I'm amazed they allowed it and they didn't like try to sue the Beastie Boys for doing that. But um, but so like I, I've always had a soft spot for that like weird kind of um I don't know what it is. It's kind of like a it's like a like a weird eclectic like drum beat that he uses and like there's these like bizarre like talk box like dueling guitar solos but the whole song is you know, like kind of about like you know like a young woman who's like wearing these like fancy shoes which i guess i forget what brand it is they were popular at the time and you know there's all these men like they like everybody that you talk to they just want to get their hands on you and they they, they offer you tablets of love and then i think i have to double check the lyrics but i don't know don henley is just really letting his like licentious like hey like kind of vibes like hang out in this album in a way that i think he like pulled back on <laughs> you know um yeah but yeah let me see yeah yeah he says "Ooh, they got the kid glove i don't i never understood like what kid glove like oh handle somebody with kid gloves but that's like a very creepy line like yeah. uh they they're waiting for you. Got to score you. Handy with the shovel and so sincere. Ooh, they got the kid glove. Uh, you just want someone to talk to. They just want to get their hands on you. You get whatever you choose. Um, oh no, you can't do that. Once you started wearing those shoes. I mean, he does mention desperation in the singles bars. All those jerk offs in their fancy cars. Um, so like, at least he's talking about somebody who's presumably like over eighteen. But like. I don't know. Like, uh, yeah. you know, tell me what you're going to do tonight, Mama. There must be someplace you can go. In the middle of the tall drinks and the drama, there must be someone uh, you know. God knows you're looking good enough, but you're so smooth and the world's so rough. You might have something to lose. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Hmm. Um, yeah, like, you got those pretty little straps around your ankles, got those shiny little chains around your heart. You got to have your independence, but you don't know just where to start. Uh, why do yeah. you have to be the one, Don Henley, to tell her where to start? You know, and then yeah, but then it gets worse. <laughs> then it gets worse, and I had to do it in the spirit of like you know, I'm not just being a dumb like Eagle stand. Like I, I will criticize <laughs> where I see something um, going on. I, the first hit on Google is like on an Eagles forum. It says, "Am I the only one who likes Teenage Jail?" And uh, yeah, that's a. I actually do this- kind of like teenage jail but the lyrics are <laughs> sus as fuck uh they're yeah. so fuck- this is the one glenn fry song that he contributed to the album don ha- don felder like really goes in on it in the book in a pretty hilarious way where i think he says that um yeah he says glenn had only brought one song to the album so far a number called teenage jail which was by far his worst writing effort and had a crazy balls to the walls guitar solo at the end of it my solo was a result of a four in the morning whacked out coked out session and to this day i'm embarrassed to have played it it just keeps lingering like a bad smell and yeah like actually i think he's being a little too hard the, the guitar solos at the end are completely that's they do sound like completely coked out like four in the morning but like it kind of fits the vibe because this is the most like infernal sleazy like dark (laughs) song that the eagles i think ever put down and like released 
What's your impression of Teenage Show? <laughs> um, like, yeah, I'm not, like, down with Teenage Jail. I mean, I also find the Disco Strangler, like, a little bit much. Like, I oh, get it. Like, you I, know, the Disco not, Strangler like, is awful. I'm a fan of Disco, but that's what I mean when there's, like, a little bit of misogyny going on here. Teenage Jail is, like, like literally, like, a perfect metaphor for, like, the degeneration of, like, the talent that, like, created Hotel California. Because it's also about being, like, trapped somewhere. But, like, it's lyrically, like, stupid. And, like, where you're trapped is, like, teenage jail. And, like, in your, yeah. like, innocence of being a teenager and, like, having your parents, like, tell you you can't get out with Don Hensley. You know, like, whatever. But also, like, the melody and, like, the tone, the, the tone of the song is, like... <laughs> evil like it's it's like it's like it's like it's like, it's like being in a van with blacked no, out windows yeah, and like a, like, like a fucking really, lollipop like it's really sus yeah. like you know and like, i mean I'll, just I'll like probably, watching I'll, like watching them like the vibe of don henley like that he gives me like is upsetting the, yeah because he sings in the, the chorus he, yeah he like yeah he creeps me out yeah still. you're lost in kid jail yeah. the way he sings is like so young so vicious, so frail, where something yeah. is always for sale. You're lost in teenage jail. Doesn't really uh, sound good considering what would happen to him no. like the next year. Uh, pretty ooh, like uh, like okay, like you where something is always for sale. Lost in a teenage jail. Like you make it, yeah, go off the deep end, make everything disappear. So like, take drugs. You're not like your mother's. You're not like the others. You're not quite like anyone else. You know, so he's talking about a girl, presumably. They don't even know you. Got nothing to show you. So go get something good for yourself. That sounds like a pitch that, like, the Beverly Hills madam would have given to this girl at, like, the bus station of, like, come work for me, you know, or something like that. Like, this is just very, uh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm reaching too far into it, but it's, like, yeah. It, it really does capture the vibe of that whole album, though. In like a more honest, like the, it's probably the most honest the song. Video the video for the Boys of Summer, like also, I find to be kind of upsetting, because like the way that like he's kind of like coming towards you like the whole time, like, and he just has this affect of like sociopathy to him. I don't know, like he just like he's saying like these lyrics that are like you know like passionate and everything, but he just seems so like blasé about it, like. You know, he has such a serious expression on his face when he performs in any capacity that it is a little bit. It's grim. They used to call like him it Grandpa doesn't fit because he was so grim saying. all the time. He just, and like he's just like kind of advancing towards you like endlessly. Like 
Yeah, you know, like you know a, what I mean? yeah. You know that video? Like it's yeah, no, you know, I know it's it. It's, like, it's got a very like uh yeah, kind of like black and white, like these like male bodies, kind of like dance, like playing volleyball. I think like these and a lot of, like, of the shots are like yeah, it's weird because he's kind of there's like a kid playing drums like in his room who I guess is supposed to be like young Don Henley. It's supposed but, to be like, him, yeah. Oh, yeah, a lot of the shots are just, like, him kind of singing, like, looking straight at you, and, like, he, yeah. the background is, like, panning away, but, like, he's sort of static, and it's, like, yeah, it's kind on a of, projection, like, he's, like, um, in yeah. The yeah, it's, right, yeah, uh, yeah, he, yeah, he did kind of try to excuse that in the documentary by saying, like, he was not comfortable when, like, the MTV era came around, because he was always, like, hidden behind his drums, so even when he was, like, right. kind of the lead singer, he didn't really have, he was just hiding back there. And I guess yeah, I mean, I guess if I had to like make a music video, like I probably would be something like that, where I'm just saying, like I'm just saying, like nobody on the beach, mm-hmm. you know, like just like kind of like, but at the same time, like the effect is still creepy and upsetting. It's somewhat understandable if you think about it, but uh, it's upsetting anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. You know, uh, also, I, I guess we we for yeah we like forgot to mention it, but I think it was like it's really important to like the degradation of the spirit of the Eagles like on this album is that like during the tour for Hotel California, which is like a huge smash hit, like things finally the limit was finally uh, they were finally taken to the limit uh, with Randy Meisner. And they mm-hmm. basically he quit the band in like a rage because they yeah, I think we discussed it a little bit like they wanted him to go and sing, take it to the limit and hit the ultra high falsetto note like often as the encore for like every show they did. But they're all totally burnt out and coked out and like tired all the time. And he was like super hungover one day and he was getting increasingly frustrated with having to do it. And I guess he, mm-hmm. you know, like also Glenn and Don, I guess, but according to Felder became like ultra like fascist and like wouldn't got really mad whenever like Joe Walsh would do some like do too many crazy antics on stage. Like they wanted to be like, no, you're going to stand here. You're going to stand here. You're going to stand here. And then we're just all going to do these songs. We're not going to talk. We're not going to make jokes. Like we're not going to do anything like. And then part of that was like, Randy, you have to go sing Take It to the Limit. And one day he was like, no, man, like I'm not going to sing Take It to the Limit tonight. And like Glenn Fry like flipped the fuck out at him and like just like flew into a rage and was like, fuck you. Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like I have to go sing Peaceful Easy Feeling and take it easy every night. I don't want to do that. But like the fans want to hear it. And, you know, yeah, the documentary does kind of present it as like Randy's just being like not a good sport. And he's just like, he he just couldn't hang with it. As Joe Walsh said, like, we were all alphas and he was a beta, you know, so. Right. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Randy was, I mean, a beta is maybe, maybe just like not like in a state of megalomania. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's not very alpha. I mean, I guess it's not, uh, you know, it is alpha to just, like, trash your hotel room and, like, having a fucking, like, silent electric chainsaw to help you accomplish your goal of, like, needlessly destroying a hotel room just because you want to be a rocker, but... Very... You're right. I never will understand the... Well, they they wouldn't have been able to do it without the open encouragement... Yeah, well, the, the open encouragement of, like, their record labels and the music companies and stuff who are willing to pay the bill for all that stuff. Like, I don't know. Perhaps they... Perhaps it was a way to, like, screw the artists out of money. Like, they could blow a bunch of their like touring paycheck on destroying like it's hard to imagine that like joe walsh would do ten thousand dollars worth of damage to a room and then like they wouldn't make him pay for it like the record Mm -hmm. label would like warner would pick it pick up the tab on that and like why would they like it's a very bizarre kind of thing it's not quite as like 19 i mean it, it escalated even more in the 1980s 
with like the like Motley Crue and like Guns and Roses, it it remained being the cool thing to do. I think the '90s it kind of sort of ended a little bit. They would just smash their guitars right. on stage, but they wouldn't smash hotel rooms. But it's it's still like a bizarre phenomenon that at least the groupies are understandable. Like okay, that's obviously a temptation and or the drugs and stuff. But like destroying property for like no reason. Why? I don't know. Do you think it was, like, to encourage, like, their more animalistic sides and, like, prevent them from, I don't know, either thinking clearly or, or developing maybe more of a contemplative social conscience? Maybe. Or part. maybe it was, like, you know, uh, because they had so much, like, repressed anger and, yeah. like, it was, like, a <laughs> vent for, like, their rage that would be, like, rightly directed at, like, maybe... Irving this, Azov Like, you know, the record executives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it's a small that, Actually, Felder did say life. that he thought that that was, like, part of the reason why Joe Walsh was so into destroying shit is because, like, he just, like, he just channeled all of his frustrations into that so then he could just, like, get high and, like, chill and kind of mm -hmm. stay detached from it all. And, like, he just, yeah, it's how he blew off all of his steam. So I guess there was a kind of, like, yeah, let them have a tantrum and have a little fun. And, yeah, here, even have a chainsaw. Like, go for it, man. You know, uh, it's very, yeah, kind of like, seems like you can't lead to like a good place. Like, I don't know, like, what's the, what's really the benefit? People think you're cool. People think you're not like pussies. Oh, if you destroy property needlessly. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But anyways, uh, but like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Randy Meisner, like, couldn't handle it anymore. And he said, fuck off. And he quit, like, at the end of the Hotel California tour. And mm -hmm. I feel like they really lost something when, like, they alienated Randy and got rid of him. I think even a lot of Eagles fans. Eagles fans are interesting because actually a lot of them kind of hate Don and Glenn. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, I mean, there's some that are just like stands that are like, they were they were doing what was best for the Eagles. But there's a lot of people right. that are like, yeah, like anybody that does something that fucked up to like Randy Meisner, like you can't stand them like uncritically and just be like, wow, these guys yeah. are great. And like everyone else is being unreasonable. Like clearly these guys were like just like huffing cocaine, like 24 seven. And were like on a huge power trip and had decided that like democratic centralism canceled, uh, no more democracy in the Eagles. I think they, hmm. they said yeah. that kind of proudly, like the Eagles are not a democracy. So, you know, they are the ultimate Stalinist communists. Like I said, on Twitter years ago, but not maybe in the way I meant. Um, I meant that they were just hardworking mm -hmm. and successful and people resented them for it, um, which is, you know, maybe, <laughs> yes. maybe also kind of true. Among certain kind of, uh, you know, hipster people that consider themselves, like, above the mass cult of, you know, something like the Eagles. You know, they prefer, like, a weird punk band that, like, wears swastikas and, like, can't play their instruments or something and, like, died and were overdoses. I gotta get away It's been too long a time I've been ready to go But I just couldn't face it My back's to the wall
but yeah, once Randy was gone, they just replaced him. They did the same thing that they did the first time and just like took the basses from Poco, which is great, by the way. Like Poco, not a bad band. Um, but they just took Timothy B. Schmidt, who had been the bassist, and were like, uh, want to be in the Eagles, and they just replaced him. He also sang falsetto, played bass. He's just kind of there. Um, you don't really need to talk about him that much. I mean, I think he like filled the void of Randy. And I think uh, I Can't Tell You Why is actually a pretty pretty dope song. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you feel about it. I, I even listen to it. I searched the lyrics you to it. So. definitely would have. Uh, if you just hear like, the opening like keyboard, you'll like probably mm-hmm. recognize it. Yeah, I don't Very really have an opinion that I can remember. Uh, looking fine. at the lyrics, um, I'm not like getting much from this uh, in terms of the actual <laughs> lyrical content. Uh, no, but no, if no, I heard no. it, maybe I would remember. The lyrics yeah, are nothing uh, special. That was like basically a Tim Beeshevitt song. They also like ran out of inspiration at this point and had to bring in a bunch of other people to like give them songs to do for this album. So like. Thankfully, Timothy Schmidt had that song lying around, so he could just do it. And then, like, Joe Walsh had a song that I think was in the Warriors soundtrack, In the City. And then I think they had to bring Bob Seger in to write, to provide Heartache Tonight. And then, uh, like, Glenn only had Teenage Jail. <laughs> like, only, like, like the quarterback of the Eagles, like, uh, the, the, Mr., the god himself, uh, basically, like, couldn't do anything beyond Teenage Jail. I think even... Yeah, the right. long run might have been Henley and like JD Souther. And the Sad Cafe, it's 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 an okay finish, I guess, to like the to be like the last song on the last Eagles record about the troubadour and like Don Henley kind of musing on like why he made it and other people didn't or just like died or faded away and like why mm-hmm. fortune smiles on some. But it's interesting he says like I don't know why fortune smiles on some and let it lets the rest go free. You think like if fortune smiles on yeah, you, very like odd. you're free. Or I guess, yeah. But it's like fortune right. grabs you in its talons and says, "I have, I have a plan It'd for you." You almost be like, "Let the rest be lost" or something. You know? Yeah, not very. Yeah, very odd. Yeah, it's like yeah. instead of the smiling on you, it's like the opposite is like not smiling on you, but like lets you go free as if it's like a mixed blessing if fortune smiles on yes. you. And, uh, you know, I mean, right. look at the whole yeah, the whole the trajectory. Um, that is I, true, I think yeah. maybe that's correct. Actually, that song does have some great like kind of like uh, transitions and like smooth ass vocals. It's, it's not bad. Um, yeah. In, in the end, it, like it had a bunch of top singles and like sold a lot of records, a lot of critics like bagged on it and I think uh, I know Felder said that it was like his least favorite because uh, he, he said it's like it's such a reflection of darkness that I just don't even like listening to it like it's it's really rough.
was basically like the end of the Eagles. Uh, they broke up in a pretty like memorable fashion at a political benefit concert in Long Beach for Senator uh, Alan Cranston. I think it was the Democratic mm-hmm, senator right. for California. Yeah. And of course, like Linda Ronstadt was dating Jerry Brown for like most of the mid to late 70s while he was governor. So they had, they had, I think, like done benefits for Jerry Brown and were kind of like tight with him. He really loved hanging out in like the LA music scene and all that stuff. But they did this benefit. And I guess, you know, Don Felder describes it like pretty, uh, <laughs> I think, probably better. Because in the documentary, it's sort of portrayed as like he was being an asshole. And like, yeah. that's what made, like, I guess what happened is like, he that's was totally like kept, the Eagles. Yeah, he ruined the like, Eagles uh, basically. Like everything gets put on Felder as like he was the mm-hmm. bad guy, and uh, what he said was that I guess at this point it was like Irving, Don, and Glenn were like making all of the decisions, and then they decided you know that, that we were going to do these like political benefits, and like Don Felder didn't really feel like the things they were choosing to do like really made sense and. Like he wasn't, he just decided like, this is what we're going to do. So now we, and we have to go. So he, he really dragged them around and like make them play all these free shows for like politicians that they liked. And uh, Don Felder was not particularly, um, super, even though he did have kind of like lefty political leanings, he did mention he was disappointed seeing the Eagles for the very first time that like they weren't. They, they didn't have any commentary about Nixon's reelection or like the escalation in like Vietnam and they just like played their music and like didn't say anything and he thought that was a little bit like odd I guess so mm-hmm. he had these like but he wasn't like super unlike say like Don Henley he wasn't super into like I'm gonna become like a activist celebrity or whatever so when he had to yeah. go backstage before this concert i guess like uh senator alan cranston and his wife like just kind of like walked up to don felder and his wife and just were like oh my god like thank you so much for doing this oh my god mm-hmm. like you, this is such a great thing and he like literally didn't know what they looked like so he didn't know that it was like the senator and his wife so he was just like oh thanks and then as they walked away he was like he turned to his wife was like i guess and like Glenn Fry mm-hmm. like overheard it and saw right. it, and he thought it was like a direct insult to like him to like insult the senator and his wife, and was just like absolutely apoplectic. And then they had to go on stage, and the documentary does show this in a pretty funny way. Of like, I guess Bill Simsick like recorded their mic audio like throughout the show, and they were just like threatening to beat the shit out of each other. Yeah, and it's like hilarious. kill each other. Yeah, it's <laughs> literally like a like, like a skit or something where they're like you know uh, just like in between songs, you're like you know they're like doodling their little songs like you know taking yeah, like smiling and just like I can't wait to fucking kill you. Yeah, three more songs. Yeah, like three more songs. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah, really. Kind of maybe testament to their uh their musicianship or whatever or just their ability to like put on a facade uh they were just like being chill but it was like falling apart on i think timothy schmidt said that he was like watching it happen was like horrified and just like playing his bass and like oh god like oh god uh, what's happening what's happening and everyone just like trying to pretend it wasn't and then uh don felder had told like one of his roadies to like put his cheapest guitar outside by the stage so when he walked off he could just smash it 
to pieces right. and then and like he jumped in his limo and like sped away as like Glenn Fry chased him uh, and then like <laughs> that was pretty much like it like they just decided that I think Glenn Fry was the one who was like I'm not doing this anymore I quit you know or whatever like the the Eagles are done yeah so it ended and quite suddenly uh, I guess Felder kind of thought that like maybe they could they could talk or work it out but basically like didn't talk to like glenn fry basically for like over a decade like he just like froze everybody out and uh and he says here this is going to lead into the last thing that is really the uh, elephant in the room that i think you know salam jihad cannot neglect to mention <laughs> is the incident that happened in 1980 with don henley and uh, which was the mm. the subject of a quite popular and and even reported, I saw a Daily Beast article mentioning it from 2018 at the height of the Me Too movement. The blog Crazy Days and Nights published this like blind item that was about this incident, basically. And uh, I'll read how Felder describes it first, uh, which is kind of the more normative way of describing it. And then we can read what Crazy Day Nights said happened. So Felder said that the only headlines after we broke up, the rest of us were making were unwelcome ones. Don Henley threw a party at his L.A. home at which a minor took an overdose of drugs. The paramedics had to be called, and the 16-year-old girl resuscitated. Don was arrested and charged with possession of marijuana, cocaine, and quaaludes, as well as contributing to the delinquency of a minor. He claimed he never even knew she was there, among all the other groupies and partygoers. He was fined $2,000, placed on probation for two years, and ordered to attend drug counseling. Later that same year, and I actually didn't know this, he and his actress girlfriend were involved in a plane crash in Aspen. So, uh, dangerous year for uh, for yes. Henley there. But, but you know, wow. that's that that that's a pretty nice way of saying what happened. Uh, that there was a 16 year old girl at his party, and then she took an overdose of drugs, and mm-hmm. then basically, uh, you know, they had to call the paramedics, and she just happened to be there, or whatever. So. This jumped out at me, and this actually, like, led me into a brief, like, very anti-Eagles phase in the end of 2017 mm-hmm. before I kind of wow. boomeranged back because it just fit with everything else that, I mean, we've talked about, like, you know, whether it's Polanski or Larry King or Mark Collins Rector, this whole Me Too culture in the entertainment business. And I never really considered, I wasn't aware of this, like, story about Don Henley, but the way Enti Lawyer... Uh, Crazy Nights and Nights described it. It was pretty shocking. So here, I'll read that now. Okay, it was from Sunday, November 12, 2017. Blind item number one. He made millions from raping young girls. Him. So this is a blind from a guy named Him with four M's that was rumored to be maybe Robert Downey Jr. who would like mm-hmm. exist in the comments. And actually, just funny story side note. This guy, one, he died like a year or two ago. Um, so he's like not around anymore and apparently is like not Robert Downey Jr. So that's been cleared up. Second of all, he blocked me on Twitter because he started posting on Twitter uh, around not long after this blind came out and had an account and uh, he just had this kind of like cloying, obnoxious like style and was claiming to dish on all this Hollywood stuff. But I just found him a little bit sus or whatever, but he, he had posted this tweet about like uh, like a song by Stephen Stills, who you know, childhood friend of Don mm-hmm. Felder, military brat uh, that Dave McGowan kind of went into, and he had a song called I think Midnight Flyer, which is basically about like a CIA mercenary pilot in Southeast Asia 
like flying low over the jungle, like uh, like dodging the North Vietnamese radar to like do secret missions or whatever. And I I think I like replied to him or like quote tweeted this thing. He's like, so rad, Stephen Stills, great song, man. And I'm like, dude, aren't you like an arch conspiracy theorist about like Hollywood? Like, what do you think about Stephen Stills like being from this like military family and like being rumored to like have been skirting around in like Latin America and Southeast Asia in the early 60s and like all kinds of like weird shit. And he he like he replied to me like right away was like, whoa, 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 man, I'm here to have a good time and everything, but I don't want to get involved in like UFO conspiracy theory stuff. <laughs> and I like really got triggered and I was like, dude, like I'm not like what? Like so saying the CIA traffics drugs is a UFO conspiracy theory. And then he blocked me. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so the, like that's my experience with I'm him i'm sure to have a good time that's yeah and that was very odd it was like oh don't talk about the laurel canyon thing oops nope i, I like I, I tripped a wire but he's more than happy to say this about don henley which i think eh, it might be interesting so he writes and also like content warning because the way this is written is like very abuse heavy and, you know, it got me fired up when I read it. So NT wrote, like, because I was an idiot yesterday, I didn't scroll down and see the full length blind. I posted the summary. Here is him in all of his glory. Quote, every Thanksgiving, his families and friends gather together to enjoy a meal while others get ready for shopping and others help out with meals at homeless shelters and charities. Some people recall another Thanksgiving from decades past, a November that one rock legend spent drugging and raping young girls. Set the DeLorean time machine back to November 21st, 1980. Number one, so this is like in blind fashion, uh, I can probably tell you who everybody is, uh, but number one, Don Henley, was co- allegedly Don Henley, um, was coming to the end of his legendary run with a group. They had made tons of money and would go on to make more and more, but the fame, money, and adoration was not enough for this rocker. Fueled by drugs and unquenchable appetites, his disgusting lifestyle and the victims left in his wake was horrible in its day and would land him in prison if he did it today. Number one had developed many nasty habits and lifestyle choices that made Roman Polanski look normal. But the I don't, is it, I don't know if it's that easy to make Roman Polanski look normal. Um, but the rocker was always protected. His past girlfriend, number four, was always there to support him, as was her then boyfriend, number five. Both were always at the forefront of feminist causes and possibly the most powerful couple on the California or even national scene. He must be talking about Linda Ronstadt and Jerry Brown. It also helped to have the most powerful people in show business to protect you, too. His manager, number two, Irving Asoff, who had lawyers, media contacts, and investigators on speed dial. Also, number three, who, although they had a love-hate relationship that would eventually turn to all hate, was glad to protect his money machine. That's David Geffen. Even when they would later sue each other for millions, they came together for political events. Thus, the rocker never really cared about consequences. That November, holed up in his California mansion a week before Thanksgiving, the rocker made his usual call to his usual madam, number six, and he requested, quote, the usual for dinner. The usual for him at young girls, and he had done this many times, both at home and on the road. He made Jimmy Page look like a gentleman. The madam routinely searched for new talent at bus stops and runway shelters. She had just found a new 16-year-old girl who looked young and liked the party. She was also very desperate and very scared. When the madam made the offer to her for a night's work, it seemed safe enough with such a huge star. The madam promised no sex involved, that the rocker just liked to hang out and smoke dope and drink. Still, the runaway asked if she could bring a friend. And yes, the madam sent two underage girls to the rocker's palace that night. The friend accompanying the 16-year-old runaway was another homeless girl who had just turned 15 years old that week. She had just run away from a violently abusive home and was still a virgin. 
the madam got to double bill the rocker for that visit. On arrival, the girls were fed cocaine to get them excited and quaaludes to keep them calm. They smoked a lot of pot, and after a dip in the jacuzzi with the rocker, they all three headed to the bedroom. The entire time, the rocker kept asking the girls to do things to each other, which neither had done before. They figured maybe if they did each other, he wouldn't do them. They were hesitant and scared, and the rocker got more and more violent. He kept taking Polaroid pictures of them all, doing everything, which embarrassed the girls. The 16-year-old asked to leave. The rocker told them they couldn't because they'd be arrested, and it was too late to call a cab. He pushed more and more drugs on them both. After the 15-year-old passed out, he began raping her. Then he began raping the 16-year-old. When the younger girl woke up, she was scared to death and saw her friend was having convulsions. The rocker was ignoring her, yelling on the phone, talking to someone later revealed to be Irving Azoff. Then the paramedics arrived. They walked into a scene they described as, quote, Sodom and Gomorrah with drugs, vomit, and booze everywhere. Both underage girls were totally naked, although the younger of the two began trying to dress. The paramedics did CPR on the girl as she was unresponsive. Then she went back into seizures. The 15-year-old said it was like a nightmare, and she tried to sneak away out of the room. The whole time, the rocker was freaking out, talking to people on the phone, until guys in suits showed up. They threatened the paramedics to stay silent. The men in suits told the younger runaway that they would take care of her and stay with them. The older runaway was put in an ambulance, and the younger one begged paramedics to take her too. When one of the suits tried to interfere, a paramedic shoved him and threatened to kick his ass. Off to the hospital they went. The rocker, his manager, and the other men in suits stayed behind. What none of them knew at the time was that the 15-year-old had managed to grab several of the Polaroids and stuff them into her clothes. At the time, she was petrified of the cops or her parents finding out, and the proof of her activity was all there in those Polaroids. So she grabbed them when the others were distracted to destroy them later. At the hospital, the older girl was given medication to save her. Uniform cops arrived. They took statements from both girls. Hours later, one of the men in suits also showed up with a bus ticket and envelope of cash for the 15-year-old. They told her to leave town and not testify or talk to anyone or else she'd be arrested or worse. She left town that day. Number two and number three, as often Geffen, wind up spending a ton of cash that Thanksgiving to lawyers, to pay off cops, paramedics, and even a judge. Several reporters were paid thousands to kill the story. Since so many people knew about it, the cops had little choice but to do something. So they handed a case over to a detective who was a friend of theirs, an elite golden boy in LAPD. He was friends with the madam, too, and became head of the LAPD sexually exploited child unit in Vice. Mostly his time was spent taking bribes from executives and covering up cases. The detective made sure the case got downgraded and the evidence was lost. With the judge's help, the entire nightmare for the rocker wound up far different than that of Roman Polanski years before. So it was then that the rocker was convicted of contributing to the delinquency of a minor and given a $2,500 fine and put on probation. No mention of rape, soliciting, or abuse of the girls. No word on what happened to the 22 grams of cocaine, 5 ounces of marijuana, or 160 quaaludes found in the rocker's bedroom strewn all over the bed. It was booked into evidence, but later became worthless as evidence. The 16-year-old runaway got out of the hospital and was found dead near the 101 freeway a year later, allegedly an overdose. Friends of hers and workers at a local shelter said she'd cleaned up, gone straight, and was trying to get her life around, turn her life around. Her death was ruled an accidental overdose. Many never believed it. One news anchor who didn't believe it was the one who didn't get bribed. She didn't like what was happening and didn't like the corruption or the rape and drugging of young girls. So she went public running her stories. She got pushback from bosses, owners, and even fans of the rocker. She was hounded from her job several years later. Her attempt to uncover the truth in the case gave way to the rocker feeling like he was the victim, like he was the one being maligned and unfairly punished. 
Yeah, like he was the victim. Since he split from the band, his new solo career was taking off. He turned his hurt feelings into a song, which became a global hit. Sure, he said it was about the media coverage of Number 7 and others, but he later admitted it was about his unfair abuse at the hands of a mean reporter, a song that was spawned by his abuse, rape, and drugging of two children who nearly died due to his perversions. The rockers spent much of the next 20 years rehabilitating his image, becoming a big political supporter and environmental activist, became big pals with two big politicians, Number 8 and Number 9, whom he met at events at Number 3's house. He played fundraisers, for them both. That is Bill and Hillary Clinton at David Geffen's house, by the way. He never was asked again in the media about that November, and it faded away mostly. Funny enough, you can still find it online, and nobody compares him to Polanski or these other monsters. Meanwhile, he became filthy rich, as did his powerful manager and the powerful record label executive. Their image is all bought and paid for. Now, this is where it gets interesting and potentially bizarre. What they didn't know, however, and still don't know, is what became of the other girl. That 15-year-old runaway who took the bus ticket cash in Blue Town, she too turned her life around, got straight, and found good people up in Northern California to take her in. She went to college, found a nice man, had a family, and settled down. That nice man she married would go on to a nice career in politics, and with his wife's support, he'd become he's become one of the most powerful men in California politics. Now, all the years later, that scared runaway girl has grown into a confident, fearless, brilliant woman. She spent the last few years, urged on by her husband and kids, putting her story and the case meticulously back together, piece by piece, legally. In 2018, she's going to drop a bomb of a reveal on the rocker, the manager, and the ex-label executive. She's prepared a criminal charge against them for many of their misdeeds, which include racketeering and collusion and criminal conspiracy, and is also hitting them with civil charges, with any funds being set aside for childhood victims. Because you see, those Polaroids she swiped that night, she blew town with them. Years later, she found them and put them in a safe deposit box. Now she has many copies, including in her attorney's safe. They too will be revealed in her case, along with hospital records, court records, legal affidavits from old cops and paramedics. There's even a video deposition from the original madam back from before her death. And the former golden boy detective, he was later caught for his many, many misdeeds and arrested, and he talked too. So as this rocker sits down in his palace this Thanksgiving, giving thanks to himself for being so wonderful, he better enjoy it. His next one will likely be spent eating from a cold metal tray in jail. He and his wealthy mogul pals will be the turkeys, and justice will be served. Hmm. So, okay, so obviously... Um, yeah, I could definitely that, buy it. I could definitely believe it. Uh, I, could, like, I could believe it. Based on Henley's vibe. Uh, yes. But, um, I don't know. Yeah. Um, the other thing yeah, is that... Although, I guess, like, you know, nothing materialized, obviously. You know, 2018 mm-hmm. has come and gone. And there's nothing to really show for it. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, and I don't know. I remember reading happened. this. I don't know. I remember reading this when it posted, and I kind of went on a little dive into, like, Don Henley, and also I really wanted to find out who is he referring to who is the wife of one of the most powerful California politicians because I figured, like, California is a big state, but it can't be that hard to narrow it down. You know, just look at people's why. And like, and initially, a lot of people really honed in on Kevin McCarthy, who is now the House Minority Leader out of Bakersfield. And he is married to somebody. But I, I, I remember reading something that kind of made me think that the age was off. I think that was what it was. Well, actually, no, it's not off, actually, because she was born in 1964. So she would have been 
almost just about turning 16 uh, in November 1980. Like, it, her birthday was on December 6th. So that would have been right. She would have been 15 going on 16. But I feel like I remember, yeah, she grew up in Fraser Park in California. One of four children. She Okay, so that was in Kern County near Bakersfield. Now, the... The hymn blind said that she went up to Northern California, but California is big. So I don't know. Northern is relative. Bakersfield is like an hour and a half north of Los Angeles. But it kind of made me think like North, North California. And uh, she was born and raised in Bakersfield. So unless she like ran away and then like came back to her hometown, then it may be. But, you know, they always say with the blinds, they always like maybe... uh, It's so ripe for disinfo also, just to be, you know, to be honest, like, you know, even though a lot of these things on Crazy Days and Nights um, did end up becoming true about people like Kevin Spacey and Weinstein, Mm -hmm. um, you do always have to slightly wonder. Um, So I guess I could say that it's like, I, I guess I can't completely rule it out. But then, you know, why, why isn't Don Henley in jail? I don't know. It, it oh, also, maybe, you, know, you know... Maybe he got wise to... Like, you know, they, they warned him in advance, so maybe, you know... Maybe he paid them off. Um, maybe he paid her off. Yeah, know? maybe they intervened. Yeah. It's yeah, possible. yeah, that could have been a thing. Um, that, that would be a really, like, dicey thing for such a prominent Congre- like Republican leader in the House to like, get kind of wrapped up in. Uh, you know, some kind of, like, payoff scheme with, like, Don Henley. But I guess, you know, things are things are private and, you know, handled out of court and civil settlements or whatever. I mean, then I guess, you know, you could just do ultra-confidentiality agreements. It sounded like from that article that, you know... But I guess, you know, we have to be... We also have to be... Keep it real about Hollywood and stuff. And a lot of times, like, you know, people that get paid off generous sums of money often just end up not talking about it. That's what happens sometimes, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I think it's, yeah, yeah, it's very difficult to say. Also, because this isn't necessarily like a person coming for. I feel like if if a woman came forward and said like the exact use that kind of language to describe what happened to her at Don Henley's house, then I think I I would definitely believe it. I would be very yeah. inclined to believe it, um, barring uh, any yeah. other kind of weird inconsistency. Like it would sound in line with like what he was doing, uh, the kind of lifestyle he was leading, especially in that weird period, like right after the Eagles broke up and he has all this money and he, he's still kind of on autopilot of like this debauchery train, like going straight to hell. Like, you, you know, and then this, uh, if you wanted to be generous to him, I suppose that you would say that maybe this was like, like, if you were to say that, okay, he wasn't doing what that blind said, but like he was, he was having such big wild parties that there were teenage pro- like teenage escorts there. Then uh, this was perhaps a wake up call that like he needed to like stop. But eh, I'm I'm also not sold that like yeah. that's maybe too generous of a characterization. Also, the interesting thing about that is this opportunity for like David Geffen and and Irving Azoff to bail him out but then have something over him for the rest of his life and basically Mm -hmm. get him like compromised by that and then his relationship going forward from that with the Clintons who he met at David Geffen's house I think as far back as the early 80s uh Don Felder mentioned that 
Don Henley became like a financial supporter and like friend of the Clintons while Bill Clinton was still governor of Arkansas. So like peak, maybe that's how uh, Glenn Fry found out about Smuggler's Blues, right? I mean, actually, it's kind of ironic because I figured Glenn Fry must have had some kind of like Mina connection to like write that song the way he did and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but actually, right, like yeah, Don Henley like seems to Mina's here to stay. Uh, yeah, Mina's here to stay. Right. But then Don Henley's the one hanging out with mm-hmm. Governor Clinton and Hillary throughout the '80s and David Geffen, and um, eh, just like uh, you know, he played at his inauguration. He played a Leonard Cohen song, which is you know, as we've like hinted at, is is kind of sus. Um, he played that Democracy right. song, which is kind of like one of his more cringy ones, like. I don't know what he was getting at. That it was almost like a cyber communism tier like song of absurdity. It was like democracy has come to the USA. Like what in 1992? Like, <laughs> like what are you talking about? Like you know, and the Don Henley covered that, and um, and like that is just a little bit funny. Also, something that jumped out at me. In the wall on a visionary flood of alcohol. Um, Whoa. Um, Also, the other thing that jumped out at me later, and I don't know if this really is like connected to the Clintons, but there was a whole thing uh, that Felder kind of made fun of Don Henley near the end of his book where he talked about how I think it might have been for Inside Job, which is kind of Mm -hmm. funny. But he made like an exclusive. He actually bragged about it in the documentary, which I thought was kind of funny. You might remember it, where he formed. He made like an exclusive deal with Walmart, right? Yeah, and was like uh-huh. really proud yeah, of I it. That as being like a funny thing where it's like <laughs> we chose not to go with a, a big record company. We we made a deal with Walmart. You know, like wow, yeah, yeah awesome. That'll teach. And him. his uh, excuse yeah. for it was basically that well, I kind of like. Uh, it makes business uh, sense, yeah. Uh, oh, no, this is it was the Eagles' comeback album, like their anti-Iraq war album that was chosen to be solely distributed through Walmart. Um, and this is in 2007. Don Henley said, this just makes business sense. With the disappearance of large record store chains, Walmart is now the largest CD retailer in the world. And if people don't want to buy from Walmart, they can... Um, oh, did I just get paywalled? What the they can fuck off, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, or, or, yeah. I turn on the tube, and what do I see? A whole lot of people crying, don't blame me. They point their crooked little fingers at everybody else. Spend all the time feeling sorry for themselves. Victim of this, victim of that. Your mama's too thin and your daddy's too fat. Get over it. Get over it. All this whining and crying. Bitchin' a fit. Get over it. Get over it. You say you haven't been the same. that we're getting up into 
into the four-hour territory. Uh, yeah, we're so, getting close. So we can start to we can start to wrap yeah, up. I mean, I just wanted to, to just to finish this thread yeah. here. Like, like okay. Walmart is is based out of Arkansas and has like deep ties. I think Hillary Clinton was on the board of Walmart. So yeah, eh, like, did the Clintons like hook it up and like you know? Um, all that kind of stuff. He also, yeah, he said he liked what they were doing for the environment, <laughs> which is like, uh, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. He said they he okay. liked their green energy efforts in like 2007. So there's that, and I don't know. Yeah, we could start to wrap up, but like, what uh, what should we leave it with? Well, were, like, were there some other stuff that you wanted to cover? Uh, well, I mentioned the Camarillo State Hospital a little bit, and you know, there. Yeah, I think that uh, there's nothing. That. There's nothing definitive, but I think it is interesting. Uh, there, I did find another great article from Freedom Magazine, the Scientology magazine, oh, right. uh, okay, railing yes, against. Uh-huh. Uh, well, it was really an article like railing against uh, Doctor Jolly and West, and uh, which is mm-hmm. you know, hey, fair enough. And they mentioned that, you know, he had this very sus, like, society, like, or, you know, Institute for the Prevention of Violence kind of initiative that he wanted to fund that was going to really sounds like apply, like, behavioral coercive experimental behavioral therapies to, like, young men to try to deprogram them from being violent and stuff. It was very problematic. Eventually, I think, got canceled, but he had wanted to build several like centers for it in California. One of them was an abandoned Nike missile base in the Santa Monica mountains, but other ones were the Vacaville prison where Tim Leary was put and maybe MK'd and lobotomized and also Camarillo state hospital. So that is an interesting, I don't know, a little data point that, you know, that hospital the proverbial possible Hotel California was uh, wrapped up in maybe uh, Dr. Jolly West's MK stuff in like the 60s and 70s. But I, I can't, I don't have much more uh, proof and I'm, I'm loath to ascribe too much to Scientology's magazine. We've already alluded to the fact that they, they had a solo thing. They got back together in 1994. But I don't know, the more I read, especially reading Don Felder's autobiography, maybe we can close with like, let me see if I could try to find like their behavior was even worse in the 90s, which really is kind of surprising. Given I remember that, this one thing from the documentary where like I think it was again Don Henley like or maybe it was Glenn Frey. I don't know. But like one of them was like I sat down with my wife and my two young kids and I said, you know, hang in there with me. Like, hopefully, you know, I'm going back out in the road again. Like, I hope it doesn't change me too much. And it's like, what a bizarre thing to say to like your young children i'll I hope try it cha- like yeah like um <laughs> like then don't uh, yeah. know if it might change you so much that it might like affect your young children like i'm oh. sure you're fine like financially yeah right well like, also don felder said you know there were different rules in this tour joe walsh almost killed himself through addiction throughout the 80s he was like an absolute right, mess yeah. and they had to mm-hmm. like don felder drove him to rehab and so he had to get clean as a condition of like rejoining the Eagles and he did, but then they instituted like, okay, no drugs or like partying policy, like backstage at the shows and stuff. Cause we don't want to like tempt Joe. And they also instituted a kind of like we, they, a lot of them had families by this point. So the vibe was quite different, which John Felder liked at first. And so I guess they had, you know, I don't know, a no 
they, they still had like groupies, like maybe some of them are older now, but like they still had women kind of like sort of throwing themselves at them. Oh, there is a quote I will want to read about Don Felder that's pretty on hawk, uh, to be honest, uh, about, you know, later how he resisted his temptations. But sometimes he saw um, like outside of Glenn Fry's like hotel room, like uh, like a room service tray with like two empty wine glasses. And so he like mm. kind of insinuates that Glenn Fry went back to like cheating on his wife, like when he was on the road. Uh, Cause it just, oh, I hope he didn't change too much, but he did. Yeah. But before we totally leave, okay, the reason I did, I got, uh, I got sent off on this crazy rabbit hole um, about Camarillo and this doesn't really relate directly to it, but there was like a really creepy story uh, that Don Felder relayed about stalkers and like some of them were autograph hunters that were just like maniacally obsessed because he was so antisocial and like didn't go out all the time and stayed with his family when they were off the road. So a lot of these autograph hunters had all this memorabilia with like four out of the five Eagle signatures, but like they could never get Felder. So um, eventually, like, people really started, like, coming after him. But there was one very bizarre incident that happened to him, I think, in the 80s after the Eagles had broken up when he was living in Malibu. And I'll just read it because it's uh, very sus. He talked about how he had a Schutzhund 3 attack guard dog, a German Shepherd, that he acquired after another incident a few years earlier when a complete stranger wearing odd clothes and with straggly hair suddenly appeared at the French windows of our house. I don't even know how he got in, but he asked me where a wedding was and placed three 45 caliber bullets in my hands with the words, these will protect you. I ran inside, locked the doors and dialed 911. As I did so, I saw Susan coming up the garden path right behind him. Who are you? What are you doing here? Get off my property, she shrieked, waving her arms at him. The kids were just a few hundred yards away in the pool when he raced back down the highway looking spooked. I ran out and pulled Susan and the kids inside and told the police to get to my house urgently. We watched from the window as the guy went down to his car, which was inexplicably parked in our drive, and opened the trunk. I honestly thought he was going to get a gun out and come back to the house and kill us all. I didn't even have a weapon on the property, and all I could think to do was grab a kitchen knife. As we watched, he stripped off all his clothes and put on a woman's dress. I had visions of him as in a horror movie, coming up and massacring us all, wearing this dress. Instead, he took some more bullets out of his pocket, threw, threw them around on the ground like he was blessing us with them, got into his car, drove to the gate, and disappeared. The police eventually picked him up in my neighbor's garden. He was from an insane asylum in Camarillo. <laughs> Somehow he'd escaped wow. his guards ah. and gotten a hold of a gun and some ammunition. I remember this the story, but the, I didn't notice yeah. that aspect. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, the officers, uh, the officers told us we'd had a very lucky escape. He was arrested while in the process of trying to convince a lady who lived down the street to look at something in the trunk of his car. She said she thought he was going to shove her in the trunk and take off. The incident really spooked me. Susan and the kids were my chief concern, so I bought a 357 Magnum pistol and we took shooting lessons. So, like, he had that, which is, I thought, very sus, that, like, the guy who breaks out of the proverbial Hotel California comes to him. It's also sus because I want to say that um, there that immediately reminded me of a similar incident that happened, I believe, with Mark David Chapman, the person who shot... John Lennon. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, and we might have mentioned it before, didn't he give like Kenneth Anger a bunch of bullets? Uh, I, I think, remember. I want to see, uh, God, what is it? Uh, the day John's music died. Yeah, yeah, no, here it is. Okay. Months before the murder, 
He visit yeah, from warriscrime.com, Project Walrus and the Murder of John Lennon. I love it. Um, let me just pull it up here. And yes, there is okay. So months before the yeah, 1977, Chapman lost his religion. His fundamentalist indoctrination festered in a stew of self-loathing, devil worship, and a killer's fantasies. Months before the murder, he visited Satanist and filmmaker Kenneth Anger at a screening in Hawaii, shook his hands. And handed over two thirty-eight caliber bullets. These are for John Lennon, he explained to Anger. Um, <laughs> and what did Kenneth Anger say? I, I don't know. It says Chapman may have felt a spiritual kinship with the Satanist. He had attempted suicide, interpreted his survival as a sign, and thereafter addressed his prayers to Satan, who responded with commands, mind control. And as it happens, the CIA has been obsessed with mind control since the dawn of the Cold War. Agency psychiatrists were eminently capable of transforming a hyper-religious nobody on the board of the Decatur Georgia YMCA into a program killer, and the allegation has been made repeatedly uh, since uh, Lennon's murder. Psychotronics was the topic of an August 1994 Newsweek report on a secret Arlington, Virginia conference between behavioral specialists from the FBI's Counterterrorism Center and Dr. Smirnoff, whose work was truly Frankensteinian. Quote, using electroencephalographs, Smirnoff measures brainwaves, then uses computers to create a map of the subconscious and various human impulses, such as anger or the sex drive. Then, through taped subliminal suggestions, he claims to physically alter the landscape with the power of suggestion. Okay. That is very creepy, uh, that a guy walked up from the Camarillo, like, MK'd out, state mental hospital, yeah. and handed him a bunch of bullets and said, these will keep you safe. And then, like, ugh, like, what the hell? Um, I don't know. It's a very sus that sus that it only happened to really happen to like Don Felder of all people, who's not the most famous of the Eagles. But um, he also had a really creepy encounter repeatedly. He got a call one day from like his lawyer who said, listen, Don, I've just driven past your house down the Pacific Coast Highway and I saw something really strange. I had to stop the car and turn around to make sure I was seeing it right. There's this guy dressed as Santa Claus standing out in the street holding up a giant placard that says, oh, right. Don Felder is unfair to his fans. He won't sign autographs. Now there was a guy who had like contacted him multiple times and like begged him to sign his stuff. Yeah, and, like, and he had like a somewhere. shrine he, in his room, like dedicated he, to the Eagles, and like he sent yeah, him, yeah, like, here, videos yeah, of him like walking around. Yeah, yeah. I just yeah. want to read this paragraph of the video because it's so creepy. He said if you like mail them to me, like I'll sign them and send them back. But he's like, no, they're too valuable. So then he just ignored it and said, well then, fine, I'm not going to do it. And then after Christmas, he got a videotape in the mail. It was from Psycho Santa. In it, he gave me a guided tour of his bedroom, which was set up as a shrine to the Eagles. It was too weird. His voice close to the mic, narrating where he'd acquired which item and why he slowly panned around the room showing his showing me his stash of t-shirts albums posters football jerseys and guitars all set up in a very obsessive way anyone could be a fan but this is way beyond the norm he was almost salivating over the memorabilia he slept with every night and his breathless narration made my flesh crawl he was scaring my wife kids and me i sent the tape to my attorney and had a restraining order issued for him he gave me no other choice and then i think at their reunion thing like he showed up again like he somehow found out where they were and Don Felder almost had like a panic attack but you know I just want to read a little like the thing that I labeled comrade fingers because I feel like he, <laughs> I feel like you know and a lot of Eagles fans like hate Don Felder now because they think he was just like so unreasonable by because basically when he was offered to come back and like rejoin the Eagles Don and Glenn renegotiated the contract so that they got more of the money 
And, like, Timothy Schmidt, Joe Walsh, and Don Felder got, like, one-seventh of the profits. So they just, like, took more for themselves. And one-seventh, let me think, that's, like, 21%, which basically meant, like, Don and Glenn both got, like, 40%, and then everyone else got, uh, or, I'm sorry, no, seven is, one-seventh is not seven. Um, I'm terrible at math. What would it be? Like, sorry, I'm like, you know, kind of fading here. Uh, it's kind of late uh, here where I oh, am. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, it's like 11. But, sorry, we'll, we'll start to wrap up. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was very yeah, uh, it, it was it was no, very I mean, insulting okay. to him. Just, uh, be, be prepared for the Dogman episode uh, that's coming up soon. Have Just, I ever, uh, have I ever, know. well, maybe a little bit during Bigfoot, but maybe, like I've, maybe the, I always write during it. the end of Bigfoot, you know. Uh, yeah, well, you know. Well, this is it. We're just closing. I just I know, I know. We got to set the record straight. I knew it was going to happen. Anyway. What time? Is it even, uh, it's not even four yet. We've done longer than four hour episodes on like everything else. So like we can, it's fine. Like we're, we're getting to the end. This might be a two parter. How long was Paul Robeson? Paul Robeson was like. Paul Robeson was like 420. Yeah. Believe me. Like we've had, the LaRouche was like four hours. Like we've had a million (laughs) four hour episodes. So like, yeah. All right. We We just started late today. Uh, But you know, it's my fault. It's my fault. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. I just, I just wanted to like, like lay the record straight because like, I think, eventually i think that like shaitan won won over like don henley and glenn fry and they became like like music industry mibs basically Mm -hmm. and like they just insisted because they were the song the primary songwriters that they should get like you know basically like double what everyone else was getting paid and like kind of if they didn't like it you can fuck off like i think like in the documentary glenn fry like bragged about how he gave like don felder an ultimatum that was like you have till the you have till sundown to accept the terms you can fuck off and like he accepted it and it was like damn dude like uh like chill and um and then on top of that like felder says about himself like that it was just all like uh, he said he said everything you see about that was like like they were such prima donnas uh glenn would start bullying random people one time he fired their press agent from like years because he demanded like hard pack marble reds to be sent to them in germany because he could only buy soft packs (laughs) there so their press agent larry salters like had airborne express like send like cartons of marlboros but then he opened them up and they were soft packs and then like had larry fired so it was like okay like that's pretty fucked up. And he did it with other people too that like for very small reasons. And Felder said the vibe was like we'd managed to avoid each other completely until the mo- until the moment when we all had to walk on stage with a big smile and say hi we're the Eagles and pretend that everything was wonderful. It was a lonely isolating experience and one that made a complete mockery of how we started and what the fans thought of us. If they'd known what each one of us was thinking as we banged out our methodically rehearsed version of our hit songs they'd probably have walked out. And then you know he said about the money because of the way I felt. I found myself constantly questioning my own motives. Was I being too greedy, wanting more when I already had so much? Then I remembered the years of grief in which I had more than earned the right to every penny I was being paid. Whether they liked it or not, Don, Glenn, and Irving had originally agreed to an equal partnership. Now they were appointing themselves as primary recipients of a work that everyone had given their lives to for so long. There were uncomfortable echoes of my father's experience at Copper's. He'd worked from his early teens to his death in his mid-60s, giving up his nights, weekends, and Sundays to do his very best for that company. He died of heart failure, and the only thing I remember them giving him was a gold watch. 
I found their ingratitude staggering. He said, it, it just kept getting worse. There were no more band meetings. This seemed like a dictatorship. He said, I've read a great deal about abusive relationships, and that's just what I felt like. An abused wife, financially and emotionally dependent on my husband, afraid that he'd dump me if I made too much fuss or did something to displease him. I was usually held off with Irving's repeated maxim, you make the music fingers and I'll take care of the business. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, nothing new under the sun. Uh, I, I'm um, curious, like you know, he mentioned that he was like reading when he was oh, on the tour. Later, yeah, yeah, he was, like, I, reading spiritually enlightening books. Yes. I wonder what the spiritually enlightening books were. Like, what I wonder they, too. You know, I thought you would appreciate that. But basically, his quote uh, was very interesting. Yeah, it's like it is really hard for an animal such as raw sexual desire to exist in the presence of something high and spiritual. That is true. Uh, it dwindles and slithers back into the darkness. I used to leave books lying around my hotel or dressing room on the plane or backstage whenever I was presented with temptation. I'd pick one up and start reading it. Yeah, you know. He said, uh, yeah. Yeah. He said, you know, I even handed one at the end of the tour to a young stewardess on her private plane who was particularly persistent and from whom, I'm proud to say, I rejected all advances. And he gave her a, yeah, he gave her a book. Um, and so, uh, like, yes. I, that seemed like, I, you know, pretty chill, pretty based. Yeah, I just uh, hope it wasn't the Urantia book. Uh, I know, right? Yeah, reading. hopefully not. Uh, it might have yeah. been some new age bullshit. But now, okay, this is one final anecdote I did want to mention because it's so emblematic of, like, what, like, Glenn Fry like, turned into. Like, the maniac he turned into and just like it's really the story of like kind of the boomers like fall from uh from innocence to experience as don henley would say um yes you know it doesn't say what kind of experience but that kind of like turning yes. the eagles from like a band into like a corporation basically and so they of course they had to go meet the clintons once they were back together uh because don henley mm. had been a big supporter of bill clinton when he was governor and arranged a benefit concert in beverly hills for his re-election campaign um and so he says susan my mother jesse and rebecca all came with me and met bill and hillary both of whom were extremely charismatic barbara streisand sang and i met sharon stone which was a personal high david geffen was there now a film mogul through his partnership with steven spielberg i was pleased to see him in the short time david its company had managed us before we moved with Irving to Frontline. He'd been extremely gracious to me. I longed for a return to such integrity. Well, you know, maybe maybe that's too nice, but uh, I guess. Um, yeah, so they, in gratitude for supporting them, they were invited to the White House to have lunch with the First Lady, with Hillary. And so the protocol dictated that you have to give them a gift to express your thanks. The gift that God selected, however, was not quite what I have what I might have chosen. Glenn had an endorsement deal with Takamine, the Japanese guitar makers, which meant that every year we were given scores of guitars to autograph and give away for promotional auctions or charity events. One of these was now destined for Bill Clinton. At various times, I suggested we try and make a deal with Martin, Fender, or Gibson instead. Quote, we're an all-American band. We're meant to be the quintessential all-American band. I thought we shouldn't be handing out cheap Japanese guitars, least of all to the President of the United States. It should be a special, handmade, commemorative American Gibson with the Eagles logo inlaid into it. No matter what I said, the deal remained. Glenn was even featured on their website endorsing their products, complete with a photo of him holding one and smiling inanely. <laughs> When we arrived at the White House, yeah. Irving had a Takamine guitar that we had all signed. As we neared the Oval Office, it was handed to me to present it to the president. Normally, <laughs> Don and Glenn would have been only too happy to step into the limelight. I was highly embarrassed by the nature of our gift. I didn't even really know what we were doing there. I wasn't a particular fan of the Clintons, and other than playing a few benefits for them, I had nothing to do with supporting them. Now suddenly they wanted me to step up to the plate. Quote, Bill Clinton is given the most elegant paintings and furniture, jewelry, china, and ornaments, which end up in the Smithsonian for posterity, and all we could manage was this? 
I found myself red-faced and tongue-tied standing in the Oval Office in front of JFK's very own desk, having the dishonor of telling Bill Clinton how much the Eagles would like to give him this special signed guitar. I wanted to say, <laughs> hey, Bill, we heard you play saxophone, so we thought you might like to try a guitar instead. But after the Cranston incident, I hardly dared open my mouth. We did so many benefit gigs, it sometimes seemed like almost all the concerts we did were for free. If it wasn't for some politician or other, it was for Glenn's golf charity, Don's Walden Woods project, or his campaign to preserve the land between his Santa Monica home, a project Joe and I dubbed Save Henley's View. A great deal of money was being taken out of every ticket this night to go to their personal charities, and after a while, I came up with an idea that I thought everyone would jump at. In my opinion, who better to benefit from the sort of generosity we'd been showing people we hardly knew than the people who had worked for us for so loyally for so long? We could do one night's gig for the crew and give them a million dollars or so to split between them by way of a thank you. That sort of money would allow them to take care of themselves in their old age. We could make these guys happy for the rest of their lives. Instead of helping our boys, we continued to raise millions for the band's various pet causes, which gave us maximum publicity and some undoubted tax advantages, while our hardworking crew continued slogging it. And, uh, yeah, so that's really, ugh, like, you know, I think Felder's yeah. right. Like, that would have been a nice thing to do, but these guys are, like, such misers, but, like, they're running around, you know, giving money to the Clintons and all this kind of shit. And, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it's, uh, you know... It's so he he started having a tough time and apparently then like the laser the Glenn Fry laser got fixed on him and like Felder's the problem. And uh, I guess he describes like a really cringy thing for Glenn's 50th birthday party at a huge party in Palm Springs at La Quinta Golf Resort. And Tom Hanks and Don Johnson were invited. Uh, sus. Uh, actually, uh, literally, uh, Don Johnson is sus, along with a list of celebrities as long as my arm. I want you all to come along and jam with me on the stage while the guests finish their banquet, he said. It wasn't an invitation. It was an order. Glenn played his guests an embarrassing video featuring film clips from his brief and not very successful acting career. After the fifth or sixth clip, someone yelled from the back of the room, only half joking, you ought to stick to playing music. After that, we played another benefit for the Tiger Woods Foundation. I guess they, they love that. Like any boomer is like their greatest honor to like hang out with, play golf with Tiger. Um, and, you know, they played a few things and it seemed like, okay. And let's see. Yeah, they were still faking uh, their camaraderie. And then they eventually, I think they tried to reset the contract and like they wouldn't let Don Felder like look at the contract. They wouldn't let his lawyers do it. And so... Eventually, he had his lawyer, like, call up, I don't know, Irving Azoff or, like, Henley's lawyer or Fry's lawyer or something like that. And that, like, made Glenn Fry so pissed off that they just met and, and like, had Azoff call him and be like, you're fired. Like, they don't want to work with mm -hmm. you anymore. It's really sad. Like, Don Felder was, like, weeping and, like, the way he was, like, talking to Glenn was like, Glenn, like, please, I'll do anything. Like, I'll do anything you want. I'll sign the contract. Like, I'll, I'll, like, I'll be your slave. Like, I'll do anything. And then, like, Glenn Fry was just, like, it was hard to get any of them even on the phone. But then he was finally, like, you need to, like, seek a higher level, Felder, and hung up on him. And, like, that was it. Wow. Yeah, you like, really fucked up. You need to seek a higher up. level. Wow, that is You need to seek a higher yeah. level, Felder. Like, you know, sorry, fingers. Uh, but, you know, it's just like... So he got kicked out, like, really excommunicated from the Eagles thing in general. The thing he describes, like, the getting inducted in the Hall of Fame in the late 90s, they did bring, like, Randy Meisner and Bernie Ledden back, and they all, like, played together. But there were, like, such strict rules. And, like, Henley and Fry, like, didn't even talk to Bernie and Randy 
when they were there. Like, they just avoided them in the dressing room. It was just like, why are you guys so fucking petty? Like, what's wrong? You're making, yeah. like, hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, you have more money than God. Like, yeah, like, bury what the is hatchet. It? Like, you know, it's years ago. Like, it was literally the 80s. Like, <clears throat> exactly. You know. And just finally, you know, they're they're all still alive, except for Glenn Fry. He died in 2016, mm-hmm. along right around the time David Bowie died. And, uh, and, you know, Felder, like, spoke out after that. And it was kind of, like, sad because uh, basically... Yeah, he, like, very publicly, like, mourned the death of him. But he said, like, I always, like, reached out to him. He's always said, like, I'll play with you guys again, like, if you ever want to. Like, I will bury the hatchet if you, like, agree to, like, talk to me. And, like, Don Henley is just like, no. Like, you could tell in the in the, in the the documentary how hostile it was. Like, Mr. Felder's, his vocals were not up to band standards, you know. Yeah. And, you know, having uh-huh, heard him sing, right. maybe they weren't. But, you know, just, like, it just, like he's such an That's asshole. It. He's complaining about money, like, you're plenty rich, like, well, it's like, you're plenty rich too, Don Henley, like, so what the fuck? Um, And I guess, you know, after, he did try to, I think, like, get in touch with uh, Fry when he heard he was, like, in the hospital again and he was sick and, like, never reached out to him and then he just died. The only person that reached out, like, Don Henley did not, I think he sent Don Henley a message afterwards that was like, oh, man, like, condolences or whatever, like, let me know if you want to like grab lunch and like Don Henley never responded. The only person that called him up was Randy Meisner who was like weeping and which is like, of course, cause he's so sensitive. Randy Meisner had a rough time as well of it. Like he got really bad into like kind of addiction and had a lot of health problems and like struggles with depression and things like that. Even though he did pump out a couple really good solo albums in the early eighties, which, you know, were uh, I think a little bit suppressed by the powers that be. It's like, they didn't want to, make randy a big deal you know it's like uh i don't really right. know and bernie Ledin just went on to be happy and be like a session musician and like producer in nashville yeah and seems to be just mm-hmm. chill he did join them on their tour in the 2010s apparently they invited right. randy but randy was in poor health so he couldn't join them so they at least like buried the hatchet a little bit with some of the guys but felder is like canceled eternally he's not a water sign he's complaining about money or you know like i don't know it's like they he he wrote hotel california i mean like he wrote the you know like i just think it i think it's dirty yeah. and uh he also produced one of the notable like post eagles tracks which is the heavy metal song like taking a ride um which is almost like the eagles don felder song that we never got because don henley sang backup vocals on it you can just barely hear him. But it's like if Don Henley was able to check his ego for like five minutes and just sing back right. up, it would have been groovy. But, you know, he just couldn't do that. So I don't know. Um, but yeah, that's 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 pretty much where they're at uh, today. Uh, also, oh, by the last thing, I wanted to give Joe Walsh and Tim Schmidt a pass. But after they fired Don Felder all dirty, like neither of them reached out to him. And like when he finally talked to them, they were just like, well, you know. None of them stuck up for him, which I think is, you know, yeah. all I think they're all my bottom line takeaway is that those four final or three Eagles now, they are the ones trapped in the Hotel California. Yeah, they can make billions of dollars anytime they like, but they can never leave. Joe Walsh, like, you know, really gave me a bad vibe. Like, the whole thing of, like, you know, just come, like, I guess maybe it was just the way that it was portrayed in the documentary where, like, you know, 
they were just going on a dark path, like, obsession with being rockers, and this, like, fool came in, and he was like, I'll show you how to be a rocker, like, we just need to, like, performatively destroy our hotel rooms for, like, no reason, and, like, act insane. Like, not that, you know, uh, I'm sure that, like, these hotels, like, suck, and are run by horrible people, and it's not, like, you know, they're probably insured for tons of money, and, like, it doesn't really, like... No one who pays for all those bills, like, really needs the money or whatever. Uh, although, like, I, I mean, you feel bad for people who have to think, clean it up. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Is he, know, like, destroying capitalism by, like, making record companies spend, like, a bunch of money on, like, doing make work or something? <laughs> like, I don't know what uh, the deal is uh, with, you know, maybe the mobbed up, like, uh, construction unions that were in every city. Oh, wow. Like, wanted yeah, him to destroy it Windows so theory. that they could get the contracts. Book- it's the ultimate broken windows theory of capitalism. Oh my it's god! Like yeah, destroy yeah. hotel rooms. You know, wow. Uh, it's just a make yeah. work project for mobbed up uh, unions, basically. Um, <laughs> for yeah, all, all I, back to the Warner Communications nexus. I don't know. Um, I mean, I feel bad for him because it just seemed like he went down a complete vortex of like yeah. alcohol and drugs. Uh, well, I, I think yeah. I don't know if we did actually mention it, but he was present at. He was a student at Kent State University and was literally present at the Kent State massacre. After which he was like so like shell shocked by it that he dropped out of college and just decided to like pursue music. So I don't know. I'm not saying like that set him off on like this whole like destructive path, but that was one example. Of, yeah, like, it, that he is, had some yeah, he had some trauma that maybe he was working yeah. through via his music and maybe mm-hmm. smashing things was like he's that sublimating his rage. Detail. Yeah, yeah, his dad sure. was also like uh, a right said, stuff. He had some interesting Air Force pilot. In the documentary too, where he's like. When you're living your life, you just feel like it's chaos. But then when you look back at it, it's like a novel or something, you know. Wait, what did did you think Uh, that was? What do you think about that line? uh, It was just odd. It was interesting. I mean, I don't know. Mm. It just stuck out to me because it was like weirdly contemplative and like, uh, you know, reflective. No, what? It's kind of lucid. It may be something he picked up in like like AA or something. Maybe, I don't know, but it also had an odd connotation of, like, feeling that your life is, like, meticulously designed in a way. Yeah, there's a hidden hand at play uh, guiding everything. But also, like, you know, I also think that memory is like that, where you do, like, kind of narrativize the past and, like, what you actually remember is different from wow things actually were like we do create narratives like, yeah in our minds. yeah uh, i think there's there's truth in there so i mean where does it leave us with the eagles are they canceled is don henley a pedo i don't know but i am leaning on the side even if putting aside the pedo story the way they behaved in the 90s and the way they boomered out like super hard is enough to make me say that like the whatever beast like was running the hotel california has successfully prevented them from leaving and they're still trapped inside of it in a way. And like, thus, you know, eh, what are you going to, it's like they had to choose whether they're going to be victims or like victimizers in a certain way. And I think they chose to be like, they chose the path of being like victimizers, if only to like their own crew and like Don Felder and, you know, people like that Mm -hmm. who they just like constantly treated with disrespect. I think we all are still trapped in the hotel California. Uh, we are we are but the, at the same time i think they were like on to something they were tapping in to like a reality that was going on around them and kind of reporting on it in the way through this kind of classic yeah. medium of like pop songwriting that evokes well, you know, something I think that there's yeah there's many examples like that you know i even think you know you're gonna upset this comparison but i think even josh harris you know like there's an aspect of like his work that is like a warning you know like yes. some like yes. he's obviously a sus individual but like some of it is like crying out for 
like people to notice like these things i think that there's actually even elements of that in polanski you know uh to go off the, i was wondering i was know, thinking about uh, that with polanski because like would i give polanski the same allowance for kind of like hint like hinting at the dark underbelly of the world and kind of like trying to make people aware of it maybe you could say that with like rosemary's baby in chinatown to some extent mm -hmm. but i i yeah. kind of feel like he was more reveling in like just like torturing his actresses or something like and just creating dread yeah and, like, well i think that kind of, like there's yeah i think there's like kind of both you know like in the same way that the uh, when you listen to the hotel california backwards it's like satan he created his own religion and it's also like <laughs> please help me please yeah it's yeah like, yeah help it anyone but also like slay her yeah 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 uh, snipe their head um <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it does make me wonder about like don henley's like uh kind of religious persuasion because he seems to be pretty interested in it like generally speaking but also kind of hostile to like christianity and that classic like you know you southern evangelicals well you are, know like, it's corrupt. like it's like, organized religion you know anything organized yeah but I don't think he's an atheist the way, like, Polanski was, necessarily. Like, an out-and-out -out atheist. Maybe he, yeah. that's just for political... Maybe that's just for business reasons. He doesn't want to alienate, like, people in, like, the the mm -hmm. South or, like, Well, Polanski, like, has a different background. You know, he's, like, European, so it's, like, very yeah. different. Like, few Americans of his generation are, like, atheists in the way that, like, someone from Openly. Polanski's background would be. Or that, like, Reddit atheists are today. Like, I would that's say, like, true. boomers don't tend to be, like, either ex-communist block style atheists or like reddity <laughs> atheists american boomers that is yeah yeah uh, so i I, I i can't say you know is he is except he, for you know, you know the four horsemen themselves or whatever you know like uh <laughs> uh carl yeah, sagan but, and, and whatnot yeah uh, i i think but, i'm gonna i think i'm gonna go hard with like the original lineup of the eagles is still uh i will defend it I will defend, like, especially the first two albums. Uh, uh, Journey I, of the Sorcerer is good, uh, I will say, you know. It's a good oh, song. yeah, the instrumental uh, track, right? I don't know why right? they complained about it, yeah. Uh, well, it was, a Felder, you know, it was a Felder track, so it had to suck. You know, it had to not be as good. Um, um, well, it was a Leiden track. It was a Bernie track. It was a Bernie track. Oh, you're right, it was uh, a Bernie track. Oh, yeah, no, they, they kind of shout on it because at that time they were like. banjo heavy, yeah, mm, mm -hmm. you know. Really great banjo work. I, I do think that if, I don't know what, like, what sick motivation was propelling David Geffen to create the quintessential American band. But I think to some extent he got to give the devil his due. I think he kind of succeeded in a way they, they are kind of crossroads, which is like devilish in its own right. But of just like all these like musical influences that were ascendant kind of in that period that had deeply influenced this like entire generation and blended it. You know, what's interesting is like they are of the three top bands. It's like the, that have sold records in the U S it's like, it's like the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, and the Eagles are number three. So, like, we don't even have an American band as the number one rock band in our own country. You know, not to sound too LaRouche-pilled, but, like, doesn't that make you pissed off? You know? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, um, but, you know, it is kind of, like, it's, it's like, these, like, all these bands that we actually think of, it's like, you almost forget, like, how many of them were British. And it's like, what are you all doing here? Like, playing the blues. It's a little weird. So, like, they're kind of the only American band. All the other ones are, like not as good as the Eagles. So you kind of have to like give it to the Eagles for like this period. I feel like, of like who's better like Chicago. Ah, come on. Like, no, they're not, you know, Fleetwood Mac, maybe kind of up there. I mean, they were like frenemy rivals in, in a lot of ways. I mean, Fleetwood Mac though is like every like hip 
fucking millennial in LA like love Sweetwood Mac and you hear it on the radio all the time and like like it's cool and like witchy and like rad to like basically stand like Fleetwood Mac but the Eagles kind of ended up on the other side of the equation even though Fleetwood Mac was like kind of just as notorious and like their behavior um on the road Mm -hmm. and and, like their love of cocaine and all that stuff but also uh you know a good band um so I don't know like uh, whatever Lebowski was wrong his 60s music is more sus than the Eagles at least the Eagles were kind of like wore the susness to the extent that it overtook them they kind of wore it on their sleeves and it's incredibly like obvious in mm-hmm. a way I mean would you agree like it, it's a uh, there's not a lot of ambiguity in like Teenage Jail there is an ambiguity in Teenage Jail that's true although it's more yeah. a, more obscure thing sus probably isn't the first thing that comes to mind when you think of, of the Eagles but there are definitely yeah. aspects there. Unless, maybe, I don't know, you're uh, a Jehovah's Witness or something who was steeped in the Hotel California Satanism rumors, like, in the heyday <laughs> of the song. We'll um, see. Uh, I'm going to go dig into some backmasking, but, you know, yeah, see what's up with that. Uh, th- not mm-hmm. done with Geffen. Also, MCA. Irving Azoff went on to become the head of MCA, which was run for decades by Lou Wasserman, who was the one who got Ronald Reagan involved with politics as the head of the Screen Actors Guild, and then, like, encouraged him to run for governor, and then they had a bunch of mob ties that are all sus. I think there was a book we referenced recently that was, like, Ronald Reagan, like, MC... I always get MCA and RCA mixed up, but, like, there's susness. I think this, like, mafia angle on the entertainment industry is something I definitely want to, like, follow up on... And do a whole little interlock investigation of because I feel like it's too random that like David Geffen ended up just like blazing his way to the absolute top and like everyone's like even terrified to like do anything against him. And like ever all the celebrities, all the celebrities like hang out with him all the time. And, you know, he's like, uh, yeah, I don't know. He's like untouchable. And, you know, how just like Brett Ratner over at Warner Brothers, like, are all these people that rise to the top? Like, is this some kind of like the like Operation Underworld from, you know, like the Yankee and Cowboy War? Is that kind of what happened? Like they they sublimated uh, basically these like mafia operations, like deeply into like the entertainment industry to run it without anyone like actually noticing i don't know it's fascinating but anyways we can get out of here um <laughs> uh all right yeah we, uh, right. we did a good Not 423 you know with so me, i think this is gonna have to be a two-parter uh it seems yeah, like um, it maybe yeah, i don't know yeah. maybe we can do the full five hours i mean the documentary well that was a two-parter though too so i don't know it was a two-parter uh, it really didn't need to be but uh yeah and uh but this did need to be uh well it needed to be four and a half yeah. hours long um yeah yeah it was uh, very funny that at the beginning you made a joke that that wasn't gonna happen but i knew that <laughs> but anyway yeah i actually need to go uh all right, but, right. Uh, um, all right so okay. that that's where we're gonna leave it now take yeah, it easy well, i'm Don't sure they'll come up the again yeah take it easy oh, they will. yeah uh we took it to the limit uh we did we took we it to did, the limit yeah. one more time yeah yeah Exactly. Work. We are on a journey of a sorcerer. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, we've true. looked into Don Henley's lion eyes and uh, yeah. realized that, yeah, anyways, that's it for now. <laughs> and <laughs> until next time, dear listeners, take it easy and stay vigilant. I wish you peace. <laughs> Salam alaikum. Yeah. Here's another one off the uh, Hotel California album. Thank you.
You've heard of how the West was won. Well, this is sort of about how the West was lost. It's called The Last Resort. Here we go. She came from Providence, one in Rhode Island, where the old world shadows hang heavy in the air. She packed her hopes and dreams like a refugee, just as her father came across the sea. She heard about a place People were smiling Spoke about the red man's ways And how they loved the land They came from everywhere To the great divine Seeking a place to stand Or a place to hide Down in the crowded bars Out for a good time Can't wait to tell you all What it's like up there They called it paradise I don't know why Somebody laid the mountains low While the town got high
Justify our bloody 